Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores and with me this week I have Mr. Dan Prosser. Hello. Hello Sam. Welcome. Welcome back for the... I think third time, isn't it? I think this is the third time. Um, wow. I was looking Not bored with me yet. <laughs> well, it's been, it's been a while. The first yes. one was in 2020. This was pre what you're up to now. Yeah. Uh, ish. Yeah, it was. And then the next one was 2020. We sort of semi-annually. Okay. Um, Once a year. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Yeah. So um, since we spoke, my uh, sort of work setup has changed a little bit. So I, I, I'm a car journalist. Um, and since 2017 or something, I've been a freelance car journalist. Mm. Um, I was at Evo for a few years before that. Um, and when we last spoke, I was probably writing for lots of different clients and doing video bits and pieces for different clients. Yeah. Um, now I'm full-time on my own project, The Intercooler. Um, and you've had Andrew Frankel on, haven't you? He's my mm-hmm. co-founder on The Intercooler. And since the start of this year, it's been um, my full-time thing. Um, so I'm, I haven't actually written for anybody else for the best part of a year now, which is odd. Um, but, you know, starting my own thing, trying to build it up into a sustainable business is what I always wanted to do. So, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm loving um, my, my setup at the moment. That is a, a massive change because I think when you were on last, which was sort of, was not sort of, was about April. April mm. 26 was when it got uploaded. Now, whether that was when we recorded it, it was probably a couple of weeks before then. Um, I think you were still making videos for piston heads and probably yeah. writing for a few different people and whatnot. So you had a you had an employer as such, not all mm. you were freelance. How has that change been 
now because now I guess it's all on you. It was all on you before, but you know, it's more on you now. <laughs> it's you know, it's totally different, um, and probably calling myself a journalist, a card journalist, is um, not accurate at the moment because mm. you know when you're running a business, there's so much stuff that you have to do that has nothing to do with driving cars and writing about them. Yeah. So that's probably, you know, a third of my time is actually doing car journalism. The rest of it is um, certainly earlier this year before we launched our website, we launched it about four months ago. And so for months leading up to that, it was just working with our brilliant web design agency. Um, that's not car journalism, you know, trying to... <laughs> trying to design a website um and then there's sort of strategizing around marketing of a a young business that's not car journalism and then there's all sorts of tedious mechanical stuff that because we're a small team i have to do paying invoices doing vat returns um tax returns that's not car journalism (laughs) so the big change for me is that most of what i do now is it's startup life, you know, that's what it is. It's startup life. And when you are a founder of a small business, you do so many different things. Um, you know, even our, we've got our own podcast um, and recording that, uploading that, editing that. Um, we were just talking about how fiendishly difficult it is to do a video podcast. It's, yeah. People won't believe it, but it's a weirdly tricky thing to do, isn't it? To do it well. It, it goes. Um, so there's, there's just all that stuff that, you know, is new to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, do you get, do you get shit from, uh, other more conventional journalists being like, you know what? You're, you're not such a journalist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> None of them have yet. <laughs> Maybe they're thinking it though. Maybe they're thinking it, but I actually, um, it just in the last sort of, since we launched the website, because, you know, so much of my time was being taken up by the, design and build process once that was up there and it settled down a little bit it freed up much more of my time Mm. so i've been able to get back to driving more cars again and writing about them so certainly in the last three months or so we've been doing more conventional car journalism which is what i got into this line of work to do so yeah that's a great thing and actually we've got plans to do much more of that stuff so hopefully you know and if we bring on a bit of support um behind the scenes in the business that frees up my time to get behind the wheel get back to writing about cars which is actually what i really want to do have you have you enjoyed the sort of hopping around and learning some new skills and diving into bits and pieces along the way actually yeah like it it can be super frustrating it really can be and particularly when you feel pulled from pillar to post and you don't get to focus on one thing for a few Mm. hours at a time because an email comes in or a phone call comes in and it drags you away and you have to go do something else that could be frustrating yeah but you know Compared to a few years ago, I now know about websites a bit. I now know about podcasting and I now know about editing podcasts and now know more about marketing, about the mechanics of running a business, about, you know, so many more varied things that are always going to be useful. Mm. And I've still been able to, I think, improve my card journalism as well. So that's the big benefit, you know, of a startup is that you do so many different things and you broaden your skill set and... Yeah, I mean, for it's massively frustrating, but you have to remember that you're doing it for your own benefit. Yeah. You know, when you're pulling those long hours, but it's for your business, you don't really mind so much. It's very different, isn't it? Because you, yeah. you're like, well, if I'm building, every minute I put in is value in that yeah. I'm also not paying anyone else. But like, 
this yeah. is going into hopefully me down the line. Mm. Um, have you found, I guess, because you're saying, you know, you're doing less automotive journalism, you know, mm. writing, driving. Have you then started cherry picking the things that you do do a little bit more? And also, I guess, because you're not 100% reliant on your personal writing output to sort of pay the bills. It's, it's more the wider business. Yeah, so I, if I only go off and do a job if I really want to do it these days, and a lot of stuff, you know, we, we're, we're very lucky we get invited to lots of launches and things. Um, but you have to be disciplined with your time. If I did everything, you know, there'd be so much yeah. behind the scenes of the intercooler that just wouldn't get done. Um, so I have to pick and choose. But that does also mean that if you get invited on the launch of the facelift of some SUV that you don't care about, yeah. you could just say, sorry, I can't make it, too busy. So I haven't done a job that I didn't want to do for quite a while now, Yeah, um, which is great. You know, that's, that's the way I like it. But most of the sort of interesting cars of the year, most, not all of them, most of them I've managed to find my way into. So the balance at the moment is pretty good. Yeah, I'm quite pleased with that. Yeah, because you've, well, actually, we'll talk about some things that you've been driving and whatnot. Um, with, the, with the website, has that been quite a different, like, how has that, how has the sort of, business but also the intercooler changed with the addition of a website because you were creating a lot of content before mm. and it was on the app how has the website sort of shifted that so it's <clears throat> allowed us to find a different audience so we weren't sure quite what was going to happen if all the app subscribers were going to mm. come across to the website and abandon the app but our initial subscribers most of whom have been with us since the start since we launched the app a year and a half ago they love the app and they're very happy where they are and so they continue to read and comment over there um, the website is a, is a there's some overlap, but it's a separate audience. Um, uh, and what we're seeing is a website is so much more visible. You know that's obvious, isn't it? And it's easier to share yeah. links and to through SEO, people stumble upon it in a way that they don't with the app. And so the web, the website is where we're seeing the growth. Um, you know, and that's the fundamental, that's the crucial point. The website mm. grows, um, and there's more that we can do around it to make it grow more. Um, and we're going to start doing some what we hope is effective, sophisticated marketing in the coming months to really push the website. So it's actually, <clears throat> although the content is the same, app and website, having a website is a step change for the business. Yeah. It's massive. It's a big investment, um, but it, it will make a profound difference to the business. Um, and also, it allows us to make the most of what it is that we do. So most of our content is feature content. You know, yeah. it's not the typical, uh, you know, newsy stuff that you can find anywhere else. It's mm. bespoke feature content. And we're doing more getting out with a couple of great cars, a gorgeous location, great photographer, and producing, you know, beautiful bespoke stories. Um, but our website allows us to take that to the next level. You know, if you, if people listening, if they haven't had a look, Go and check out the-intercooler.com and you'll see that when you know one of our stories, particularly when we've been out and photographed it for ourselves, they actually look beautiful on the screen. Mm. They look lovely. If we've got great images, the way the articles are laid out, it looks stunning. And the key thing is here is that there are no ads. There are no ads on the intercooler. And so there's nothing popping up. There are no flashing banner ads, nothing yeah, yeah. distracting you. So, you know, we think, and we would say this, but we think it's the best reading experience that there is in the car world because there isn't actually another um car magazine digital car magazine that doesn't carry ads 
So yeah. that's that, that's what that, that, that's what we set out from day one to do, and a website just allows us to do that more effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally see that, and that that is definitely a problem with podcasts as such. They, I think they're getting better, but it's a bit like it's this sort of secret thing that you kind of need to know about, which is really awful if yeah. you want to reach more people. <laughs> it's a tough game, that isn't it? Like it's, hard. it's a tough game, that. And actually, I, I I don't know what it takes to double an audience or to triple it. I don't know what that takes. It, it doesn't sound like a particularly ambitious thing to do, but mm. like when I look at like the growth of the, my podcast over time, and I'm like, okay, but if we like double the audience or five times my audience, which doesn't seem like completely insane mm. over time it would like that would be great that would be returns would be much better it would make be a much better business etc all that stuff and um but then you try and go about and do it and it like it's not that you then have to start thinking out the box it's really not you've got yeah. like how, you've got to be doing basically other stuff i think yeah that then just goes oh by the way i also have a podcast yeah it's it- it's very tough. I think I heard you say before that when you started, you just assumed that if you keep doing it, it would grow yeah. on its own. But it doesn't seem to happen that way. Um, <clears throat> and so you're right. It, do you know, it might be that the podcasting space in automotive is fairly immature. Um, it might be that the audiences are yet to arrive and it might just happen over time. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I, it, does, it does happen. I think the style of podcast... And you've now done both, but the style of podcast probably makes a difference. If it's you two guys chatting, that is a that is a very good. Uh, like let's say that the two stars, you have a group of people that chat every week. Yeah, and the most popular one, I think, Smith and Sniff. I think they're still the most popular. Yeah. Two people chatting. You've got. You don't have to worry about organisation too much. You know that person's going to be around. Mm. You can plan it, etc. You have to come up with things to talk about, which I imagine is slightly interesting but the other is booking guests booking guests a whole nother dilemma you've done some of it um but then you do get the drawing from their name they've got an audience like you get a bit of that each time Mm. an interesting new guest comes on um and yeah because you've done a app only series haven't you yeah, so it's <clears throat> um, for subscribers only, um, although we're reviewing that at the moment. Mm. Um, it's a guest-based podcast series called Last Blast. Um, and if you listen to it, you won't have to think too hard about what our inspiration was. It's, we joke about it, you know, it's desert island discs for cars, yeah, yeah. really. That's the point of it. Um, but no one's done that in the car well, okay, I don't think anyone's done that in the car space before with a particular format, yeah. um, interviewing guests. And we've been very lucky. We've had some brilliant people on. You know, we um, one of them was Adrian Newey, the Red Bull yeah, F1 designer. We had an hour and a half of his time. And I just wonder what that's worth. Yeah. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a race team, what do you have to pay to get an hour and a half of his time? Um, well, it's declared and also undeclared. let's not get into that (laughs) Um, so yeah we've been looking at guest podcasts ourselves and actually it's one of our plans for 23 is to mix up our weekly podcast Mm. so 
We want to get our contributors onto the podcast more regularly. We, we want to have guests onto the podcast more, re more regularly um, so that maybe only every other episode is just me and Andrew. Um, and we want Sounds to, like yeah, just mix it up. Um, and we want to do more last blast. Um, and probably what we'll do is, um, yet to be decided actually, but <clears throat> what we might do is make every episode of a season of last blast available just to our subscribers initially, perhaps without ads. And then later on, they'll go out publicly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, actually the main reason for doing that is that you'll know about this. People like to have an RSS feed for a podcast so they can they can listen to it through whatever app they use yeah. or on any device they like or whatever and you just can't do that with a podcast that's behind a paywall there's no way of doing it at least not that we've been able to figure out i think you can you can do yeah, it yeah i i thought you could but i've not you know we've had people looking into it and we've not been able to figure out an effective way of doing it Matt, um smoking tire they do it do they not i think you have to use something like patreon but there, there must be a way yeah. you can do it i think it's not i think the way you do it is you have your paywall and yeah. the people get the, once they get beyond the paywall they get a link and it's an rss feed that no one knows that is not public as such yeah so it's a separate feed i think that's how it works so technically anyone could listen to it if they knew the feed but you need the link info but you need the link and then you only get the link once you paid mm. you then have well, to that's possible sort of change it every year or something i don't know yeah, Just to yeah keep it. well that's easy enough isn't it but, um, well i mean as i said we haven't made any decisions yet um but i'll look into that but you, you know the other point is that we think we could make Last Blast a fairly significant thing within our world because um, it's a good format and we've had great guests and we think there's we could build some momentum behind it. So that's what we're going to be investigating yeah. um, in the next few months. As long as someone called Sam doesn't keep interviewing all the same guests. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny, isn't it? There's so much, but that's why we decide to go with a format yeah. where we, we ask them for the six cars that have meant the most to them during their life um, and then they tell us which one of those they'd take for a last blast mm. and there are a few other elements around it it's a it's a conversation about their life and work but we have this structure yeah. that we stick to and I think um, I found this from at the moment some cool new car comes out and you get five people doing a podcast uh, not a podcast a YouTube video walking around the car talking to ideally yeah. the person that made it and I find with a car that I'm really interested in I can probably listen to like a few different people sometimes mm. and you get different questions because they're like not, no one is me. So no one's going to ask exactly what I would ask. So sometimes I need two people to come at it from slightly different angles and I can listen to both. Um, and I find interviews like it's, it's a real reflection of the person doing the interview as well. Um, yeah. that like you, you know, they're not necessarily providing the answers and whatever, but each person giving an interview and asking the questions gets something else from the person. Yeah, just because, yeah, that's right. Just because you've heard one interview with someone doesn't mean you've heard everything. No. Not at all. There's so much scope to interview. You know, if they're, as long as they're an interesting guest with plenty to say. Yeah. And you know what it's like. You can talk to someone for three hours and still feel that you've, there's ground that you haven't touched. Yeah. Um, I so, had yeah. I had one guest this year 
and it stands out. It's a guy called Colin Hode, who no one's... Some oh, the driving chap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's based at um, Millbrook. And we talked about driving, driving mechanics, and like physics-y type driving stuff. I stopped it at three and a half hours. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, we're done. Like, uh, this is not the end, <laughs> but like, we're done. This is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's great, though. I mean, when people have got lots to say, that's why pro- podcasting is brilliant, isn't it? Because you can just yeah. go and go and go. Until you suddenly go, nope, that's it. Thank you very much. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. To a point, yeah. To a point. <laughs> How do you guys think of what to do each week? In, in terms of podcasting? Podcasting, or... yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is one reason why we're going to start mixing it up. Because <laughs> I think we're probably, you know, going back over old ground. Sometimes it's obvious. Um, <clears throat> if we've driven an important new car, mm-hmm. you know, like a McLaren Artura, for instance... That kind of takes care of itself that week. Yeah. Um, and normally there's enough going on that it's quite easy to pick a topic. Um, you know, one of the best received ones we did recently was uh, all about Top Gear. You know, the Clarkson Hammond yeah. May studio era Top Gear. Because it was 20 years old last yeah. month. Um, and so that's really easy. You know, it's topical and there's so much to say about that. Um, so that was that was a good episode. But... Other times you have to get creative, mm. you know, you really do. And you, you scrape the barrel a little bit, but you know, we do, I, I think we have Christmas off. So we do 51 episodes, um, a year, Which that's is a lot, 40 plus hours. So it's a lot to fill. So, you know, and what I'd like to do by getting guests onto the regular podcast is just to take that pressure off me and Andrew yeah. so that we're only talking, just when it's just the two of us, we're only talking about the top tier, most interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what we're working towards. Because I, f- I found I was recording, I go through various periods of time where I'm recording like a lot in one go. And I realized that I could only do that for a certain amount of time before my conversation and my brain was in the same place for every... If I do four, four a week, yeah, if I did four yeah. a week, there's, they're actually going to be four similar-ish mm. conversations. Now, they're not, because the guests are different and whatever sure. and it can, but let's say if I had a two automotive journalists back-to-back, the, the, those are the ones where it gets a bit more topical, a bit more what's in my mm. head, and... I, re- I go like, nah, I need to have like three weeks before I do another one like that, just because yeah, I need my brain to like move on. Well, that's the, do you know, that is the key thing about this line of work, whether you're a columnist, a feature writer or a podcaster or whatever, you have to be active in the space. You know, the moment that you're just mostly sat at home, mostly reading and watching what other people mm. are doing, you're not going to have anything to say. You've got to be out there. I remember Chris Harris saying, I was talking to him um, about when he had a column, a weekly column at Autocar. And I just said to him, I actually don't know how you found something to write about every single week. Yeah. And Matt Pryor has that space now. I think you probably know Matt Pryor. Yeah. Um, and actually, as long as you create for yourself a busy life around cars, you know, if you're working on the staff of a car magazine, you've got that already. But then in your own time, you're going off and doing stuff with cars because you're an enthusiast. Your friends are doing stuff with cars. Um, it actually becomes quite easy. You're just active in that space. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's the same for what we do, chatting about them. 
As long as you're active in the space and you are taking an interest and going off and taking the time to do stuff, yeah. um, you can keep it fresh. That's it. And that question, like, what have you done this week? It's a pretty sort of lame question. But if you don't immediately go, well, I've done, in your head, you're like, oh, I've done like this, 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 and like, I can talk about this, this, this. If you're like, no, I don't actually, there's hmm. nothing that I've done. One yeah. of the YouTube channels that I follow is a guy called Peter McKinnon who makes sick videos. Um, but his, he had said a thing recently. It was like, you've got to create more than you consume. And that has sort of like stuck with me a little bit because I, I watch and listen to a lot of stuff. Mm. And I realise the more I do that, the less I sort of have to give out into the world. Like if I'm just sitting there and being mm. like, oh, that's interesting and this is interesting and this is interesting, but not doing and not yeah. like making stuff, yeah. then my brain just slowly like fizzles away. And, and ultimately you haven't really got that much to talk about if you're just... Consuming. Also, you're, you're not going to be original, are you? No. You're not going to have your own points of view if you're not going out there and doing stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a very good point. Yeah, I totally understand that. You're, you're much more familiar with the YouTube space than I am. We are, we're trying to figure out how the intercooler does video, mm. you know, and how <laughs> we do it a bit differently and how we can make a name for ourselves on YouTube. Have you and thought of a way yet? <laughs> <laughs> well no I mean the, what we're not going to do is expensive productions every single week no because that's thousands a month as, as immediately. the content creator who wants to make those videos fine as the business owner paying to you know that that's a really stupid idea like as much as yeah. people get to do it and there's companies um, you know every every year there's maybe a different company but maybe not that will pay a certain bunch of great journalists and great teams to go and make amazing content but they don't do it forever unless mm. there's some business thing behind it and for most people that it doesn't work like it, yeah. it just doesn't work yeah I think it's got to be super lean um, you, and it's, you find a balance you it needs to be lean, cost-effective, but you still need to do it well, and you need some production value in there. Yeah. It's tricky. It's really tricky. And I think the only way to do it, really, is it, the business side of it has got to be not related to views as such. Yeah. Like for, and for you guys, it's going to be a marketing tool, isn't it, really? It's mm. not going to be a... So it's going to be a cost, and then it's like, what can we keep that mm. cost? Ideally, it covers some, but what can we keep it down to... Yeah. to still work I don't know that's right something that I think is interesting from the the sort of YouTuber Kari type people or someone like myself or something is all of those people can do all of the things in yeah they can't write anything but they can talk to camera record something and edit it and I know there's a lot of if you're a conventional automotive journalist that would not be a skill set that you've built up at all in the slightest it's it's learning you're starting from zero so then you at least need two people mm. and then you end up with three and then it's like how long have you spent on this and it's it's tough to, and to do it to a really good standard <laughs> we actually had lunch with someone um you know a fairly prominent figure in the industry and just sort of sounding him out, seeing if he'd be interested in taking on our video side and just mm. seeing if it's feasible. I'm not going to say who it was. Um, and he reckoned that 
you would need to spend several thousand per video to do it well. Yeah. Maybe even 10,000 per video to do it really well. <laughs> and, you know, it, our world doesn't generate enough money. Well, I, perhaps if you're doing, you know, the Doug DeMuro views, it does. But who? how many people actually Doug, do that? Doug doesn't do it with a production crew. No, that's he, true. He just, like, films everything as lean as possible. Like Tim, yeah. for example. Yeah. Like, he's making lots of money at it, but he's still films and edits everything pretty much himself yeah. itself and the key is lot. rate of videos like yeah I, and i don't think you have to have high quality i think it's nice and i think you can mm. get a certain level um and you look at some of the crews that do stuff someone like henry i don't know whether this was who you were talking to but there are only two people i think most of the time um mm. you see a lot of what people can do with one at least one person on site. It's it's not as it's not as slick, but you can do a pretty good job if you if you go yeah. outside of the automotive space and see what people make in the sort of vlogging, definitely in the photography film because obviously they're mad into it. Really, um, yeah. the sort of things people make from one person is easily quality good enough. Like it's like commercial level awesome stuff, but it's they're not necessarily doing a car review. Um, and it's, are you then doing car reviews? Is that the thing? Are you doing a car review or are you telling stories? And is it the life and something of the person? In which case, well, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> That's right. All, all to be discussed. I mean, yeah, cars are an inherently expensive thing to film. You know, particularly if you've got the hero car, the support car, you're going off somewhere to good roads. Immediately, you've got a couple hundred quid in fuel. Um, and then it just piles on on top of that. So what we <clears throat> we've got a video coming soon. It might already be out by the time this podcast goes out. Um, but me and Andrew, we had uh, we got McLaren P1 and 765LT together that is for not a, a, bad a photo duo. shoot. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that is not a bad duo to get together. <laughs> Unbelievable! It, it was. We went to some great roads in South Wales, and we got lucky with the weather. So it was a mega day out, and we had a brilliant photographer, Olgan Cordell. Um, he's at Cars and Colour on Instagram. You might be familiar with him, but he's he's a brilliant photographer. He got some gorgeous shots. Um, and while we were doing that photo shoot, I grabbed some stuff on my phone, some video footage on my yeah. phone. Um, we got Olgan to shoot some tracking just while we were doing yeah. the stills photography, the tracking. He just flipped his camera um, and recorded some video. Um, I put a GoPro in the windscreen of each car and did a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and then we had a, me and Andrew had a conversation in front of the two cars right at the end. Um, so that is as lean as you can make a video. Now, the issue here is that I, I, I'm not a video editor. I, I could learn it, but I, I've got other stuff that I need to be doing. Yeah. So we have had to pay someone to go and edit it, which is an expense. You know, it's, a, it's not a small one. Um, but even so, you know, I think we were able to produce decent video working that way yeah, yeah. and also making good use of the stills photography that we've got yeah you know that was a key part of it um and so i haven't uploaded it yet it's not gone out so it'd just be interesting to see if that gets any traction at all um so you know that's the sort of thing that we're thinking about is while we've got great cars together on great roads what can we shoot um in a, a sort of time uh, timely, cost-effective way, um, 
And can a skilled editor pull that together into something worthwhile? So I think we're going to try that a few times as we begin to sort of find our feet with YouTube and figure it out, figure out what it is that we try to do. Yeah, I think at the moment, um, and you, you, you definitely can pull decent stuff from doing that. Like, if you look at what most people are putting out, that is like easily at mm. that level or above from what you you were sort of doing there. Um, is it's short videos, like that is the real winner in 2022 probably going forwards it's like a minute or less and it really what for reels and for uh, shorts and stuff i mean the beauty of it is you create one video and you can make it a minute or less let's just say just say you keep it to that and then it's like it's like a walk around of a car with some interesting details Mm. or whatever something like that and then you put it on four platforms at once in one format and one of them takes off, one doesn't. And all that, all you're doing then is just marketing your brand, basically. But the effort is less, sometimes less. And they God, get, I wish they I'd get, known this a few weeks ago. They get more views. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've had um, on our Instagram at The Intercooler, we've posted a few reels that have been picked up. Yeah. Um, so I had one that did a million views. That's not bad. Um, yeah, and... <laughs> I'm looking at another that's done three quarters of a million, yeah. others that have done more than half a million. So some of them get picked up and they might have taken literally as long to record as they are yeah. in length, you know, 60 seconds, and then that again to upload them. Um, so that stuff is super easy to do. And you're absolutely right. We should do more of those because you can stick the same little bit of content across all the different platforms, can't you? Yeah. And if it's good, one of them will will get picked up as you say and and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out but at the same time that's not as bad as spending 10 grand on a video and it getting 2,000 views on YouTube like that mm. that outcome that hurts <laughs> that's a disaster isn't it that is a problem yeah and so ideally we, you do a bit of both well yeah so we, we you know sometimes we will um, and it's made easier when it's on a manufacturer launch event where the costs are basically yeah. covered um, so sometimes we'll do bigger productions that are a bit more ambitious, cost a bit more, but it's just not feasible while you're building a YouTube audience because the, the ad revenue is not there. Um, so you have it's to, never there. you have to, it's never, well, there. that's right. Yeah. It's never at 10 grand a, no. a video. You can never justify that. No. Um, and then you're running so, ads and then like, yeah, yeah, you can make it work, but then it's, it's still a volume game at that point. Not yeah. a high quality so video. It's a really, really interesting challenge, actually. And it's interesting to hear your thoughts because I think you're more familiar with it than I am. But I should sell myself as a consultant in this space. You should. <laughs> yeah, you probably could. There'd be lots of people interested in what you think. Um, um, but it, it's, a, it's a funny old game. It is, it is. So you mentioned driving 765LT and P1. Now, I presume on paper they're pretty similar in pace. Is is, is the 765 on the LT faster? No, no, in numbers term, not on in driving. So power to weight ratio. I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but the P1 still has the better power to weight ratio. Okay. Just. I think it's like 7% in it or something. So it's very, very close. The P1's got another 140 horsepower. It weighs 151 kilograms more. Only um, that? I thought it would be a lot yeah. more than that. Because, yeah, so it's actually not that much, that hybrid system. Um, 
But yeah, n- nevertheless, the P1 has the better power to weight ratio. They feel as violently accelerative on the road in a straight line as each other. They just deliver their power slightly differently. Yeah. You know, because the P1's got that torque fill. So the moment you open the accelerator, it just goes, you get that, that yeah. hit. It just skates off down the road immediately. Um, and then when the turbos boost, it just lights up and it's utterly bananas. Um, but the 765 LT is very different. So the force you feel in your back is probably about the same, but it delivers its power so differently. You've got no hybrid assistance, so no torque fill. And that 4-litre V8 and the 3.8 V8, the twin-turbo McLaren engine, it's laggy. That is a yeah. boosty, laggy engine. So you need a good few thousand RPM, and you need to give it time to build the boost before it hits. Um, and uh, so what you get in the LT is you put your foot down, wait a split second, feel the boost rise, and then it goes. But it's extraordinary how it, you know, it gives you this massive whack in the back. And then at 7,000 RPM or something, it just goes again. Mm. And then it rockets you down the road, and it's frightening. It is unbelievable how it just keeps piling on the speed. So it's not the initial hit that surprises you. It's how it keeps going. And in that moment, you know, in second, third gear, above 6,000 RPM, that's about as forceful as I've ever felt a car accelerate. Yeah. It's frightening. The trouble is... (laughs) <laughs> the speed limit is 60 miles an hour isn't it? that's a problem <laughs> and you're just doing bonkers speed after a couple of seconds of acceleration so which just nuts which of the two do you prefer now, ignoring value yeah whatever like to just go for a drive and that's all you get P1 P1 yeah I, I love that car um, I think it's because it might be because it weighs a little bit more, but it's just it's not so tied down like the 765 LT. So it just rolls a bit more in corners. Mm. You feel it rise and fall a bit more heavily over undulations in the road. And so it has this lovely sense of flow and rhythm. Um, and I just it's just delicious when you get it in that, that, that phase. It just feels lovely with gorgeous steering, razor-sharp throttle response tons of grip and the old mclaren attributes you know you've got great visibility yeah. you feel it sat right at the front of the car it's an amazing thing and then the lt it still feels a lot like a mclaren but it's more like a race car so it's it's so razor sharp and so energetic you know and it's almost frantic um and particularly this one which has the those center seats that have almost no padding in them yeah um so it just feels like a racing car and it's frenetic. It's probably, you know, technically better because it's got better body control. It rolls less. But it's just so manic. And I don't <laughs> feel that same sense of flow and rhythm in it. Yeah. Um, and which one is ultimately quicker? I don't know on the road, nor do I know on track, actually. Probably the P1 because it can squat down, can't it? And that wing comes all the way up. I had someone talk about... It wasn't this, but it was an interesting debate that I'd not thought about it. And it was, so they were talking about Nürburgring times of new RS, which I know you've driven, we should talk about, um, and versus the two RS MR. Oh, yes. And it was like one lap, two RS MR, faster. 
three laps, three RS will be faster mm. because, and I think P one <laughs> will be like this because you get one lap and yeah. it will drop everything and go really quickly, but also it's a bit heavier and it will wear the tires a bit more. So by the time you're down to lap, lap three, well, the P one could be running out of juice on a Nurburgring lap. Yeah. It's for sure run out of juice. So then oh, you're yeah. lugging the weight around. It will have cooked the tires more. And so the difference will drop off significantly, whereas something like a three RS is much more even in terms of tire wear, and we'll just keep banging that lap time for. It's a very 10 good laps. point. It's a it's a very good point, but it also illustrates how how much bollocks lap times are. You know, one <laughs> lap. That's what we're talking about. One lap, yeah. as if that matters. It's not qualifying. We're not Formula One drivers. You know. Yeah. And it's a very very good point. There are lots of cars that. Um, will just struggle. Their brakes might just cook after one lap. They might have one hard lap yeah. in them. I'd, I'd not thought about that from a wider look at the topic, but actually, hmm. when a magazine does the fastest time, we all know that's kind of like whatever, but at the same time, it is like a, you know, if you're the fastest, you're the fastest. Yeah. But it would be much more interesting, especially from a driver's point of view in terms yeah. of if you're going to own a, a car, let's say a 10 lap time, yeah. Let's say a 10 lap time at like Silverstone. This is genius. This is genius. Someone's going to pick this up. Maybe it should be me or you. One of us has to do it. But yeah, even if it's just five laps, a five lap stint would reveal so much more than a single lap. So much. That's really interesting. And you'd see how the tyres fade. You'd see how the yep. brakes fade. If it's a hybrid, you'd see how that electric boost fades. Yep. Um, and it's much, much more relevant to how owners use their cars on track you go out and do five five laps laps, maybe ten five is probably if you maybe if you're in an rs or something you might do a bit more Mm. but most cars i reckon about five laps before things start to get absolutely mental and that is enough time to fully show up like i had an m2 and in stock form it i took it to bedford and it would not do five laps like mm. your 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 like brake pedal, you know, it would do it, but your brake pedal's yeah. getting yeah, really, yeah, yeah. really long. And those cars that are on paper really fast, let's say like an Aventador SVJ or something, I imagine after five laps, you're it's getting really all these cars that are really heavy, like a, a new M3 or something. Yeah. All, all cars are really heavy now, but like something like that after that period of time, the deficit to its ultimate lap time, like that that would be a great figure wouldn't it that's how brilliant much, how far off your first lap is yeah. your fifth lap yeah and you'd call it lap time decay what's yeah. the decay <laughs> from first to yeah. last but also for, again from a driver's point of view a good a really good well-sorted car will allow you to be consistent lap yeah. after lap and it might fade a little bit because mm. these things happen particularly with road cars but you'll be able to basically hit the same apexes, same braking points and so on. But a bad car would make being consistent very, very difficult. And that would show up yeah. in this little test that we've just devised, which is genius and absolutely needs to be copyrighted straight away. <laughs> it, but it's, yeah, so interesting. It, it's, it would be, it's a much more real world, much more realistic bit of insight. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's brilliant. I mean, there are practical issues. You know, when... When do you do it? Where do you do it? Well, yeah, and if you've got five or six cars or 10 or 12, if it's a car of the year type thing, you know, suddenly that, that's half the day gone. If, if you've got, if you're a magazine type person, uh, team, and you have some time on track, then doing five laps is probably what people actually do. 
I know some they go do like an out, then a fast, and then mm. an in. But like that's pretty. Yeah, you're going to have some familiarization, and you could even have it where it's if it's the same driver. Assuming it's going to be the same driver, they don't get to drive the car before, and then they get to do it. So you'll mm. see that you'll see it go the lap time drop. Yeah. Not this. You've got the car all day. Go yeah, yeah. for your one. It's yeah. like no. How quickly can mm. you get to the limits of this car? Because that in itself is another. That reveals something. That reveals something. And that's, I think that was one of the things, I, another thing about these, the, the Manti Porsches, is it, it's not necessarily that just they're faster around the Nürburgring, but they're easier to drive fast. That's the yes. main thing that everyone yeah, who's yeah. driving them says, they're easier to drive fast and therefore you can drive faster because mm. they're not as, they're just easier to get to that limit and then they're also capable. Um, Whereas it's like, such an important point, and again, it just reveals how lap times really don't tell you much about the car at all. And also, let's not forget the people who are setting these lap times <laughs> are gods. Yeah, they are gods. The rest of us wouldn't get close, but in a really well sorted car, you'd stand a better chance of getting close to that ultimate lap time. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's we could reveal so much more about a car just by timing it slightly differently and presenting the data a bit differently and do you think it's really interesting do you think that takes i think you wouldn't that wouldn't take much explaining you're you're your person that's just going to quote an herbo ring lap time and the acceleration figures and not look at anything else outside mm. of those numbers like weight who's made yeah. it power whatever who, who set the lap time was it legal any of that sort of stuff um you're a person that's done a little bit of track driving or whatever would go oh yeah no that Mm. that's really interesting and like it's a much more insightful test of a car isn't it i don't know why it's never been done before it will be it's got to be done it's got to be done (laughs) (laughs) Um, well done so one of the things okay one of the cars i just mentioned new gt3 rs yeah talk to me okay terrible dreadful let's do this from our new (laughs) metrics of uh, yeah. getting in the car from fresh. I know you had, did, I think it was, was it wet when you drove it? Oh, it's awful, yeah. Not necessarily yeah, yeah. the best. But how quickly could you get used to that car and how quickly did you feel like you were pushing the car? Let's, let's do this from this new five lap angle. <sighs> oh, do you know, the conditions so compromised my time in that car. And particularly because it started off soaking wet by the end, it was halfway to dry. So it's really hard to yeah. figure out how close you're getting to the limit of that car mm. um, when the conditions are changing by the lap. Um, so, yeah, I think because it's basically a GT3 RS and I'm familiar with those um, and it has the same fundamental feel of a previous GT3 RS or even the you know, the current GT3, you can get up it quite quickly. Um, of course, the big thing about that car is the aero. That's the big step forward that they've taken. It's was it almost double the aero downforce of the, like the previous one, something like that. It's a huge step. And so it's having confidence in that downforce, which is a, partic- a very particular thing. You know, I, I've not driven many very high downforce cars because there aren't that many. There are a few no. hypercars, but really for very high downforce, you need a racing car. Yeah, no road cars, um, really. Yeah, no, exactly. But the RS is getting to the point where it has meaningful downforce. Mm. And so having that faith in it, I was at Dunsfold, the Top Gear test track, 
and it's got those two quick corners. The follow through is the really quick one, isn't it? Um, and it, it's very, very telling through there because you don't, or well, certainly I didn't feel like I had a huge amount of confidence when the track was greasy, at least. But the moment you turn into a corner and get to the apex, you realise you could have gone much quicker, much yeah. quicker, because the air of the downforce is doing its thing. Um, and what you feel is that in the quick stuff, even when you're not being super brave, the car just feels stable, really stable, planted. And then you get to the low-speed stuff, and it's just skating around, sliding all over the place, because it's not being pressed into the ground. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, you can appreciate all that downforce, um, even though it would take me a bit longer to really feel like I was exploiting all of it. Yeah. But because it's a, you know, all these Porsche motorsport cars are the same. They're easy to feel around you. They're communicative. They give you a sense of their grip and their balance. Um, So they are fundamentally quite straightforward cars to get into and drive quickly. But of course it's driving it. It's getting those final few tenths of lap time out of them that takes huge skill, huge commitment, huge bravery, experience, more than I've got. Um, but the, yeah, it, this new one is a, it is a mega thing. It's a pretty cool. Are you, do you, but are you in, because you've had, I think you sold yours, didn't you? You had a 9072, which is my favourite. Still got it. But, oh, you still got it. Okay, fine. Yeah. So you've got the, what I think is the best one. Are you interested in, in this? If you got offered an allocation, would you have one? I think there's two separate questions there. If you got after the allocation, would you have one? Yes. Because then you, if you don't like it... For you whatever just, reason, yes. Thank you, you very take, much. You take it, yeah, that's but, right. Yeah. But actually, it was the first RS of 99... Yeah, first since 991 that I've gone... Actually, I would quite like that and I would like to go and do five, six track days a year or something. To use it to go... Places I wouldn't necessarily race, so race a bit in the UK, but like go to other interesting places to take it on a little bit of a road trip to drive other tracks. And I, one of the main things is the downforce. I'm like, that's interesting, but I've driven stuff with downforce. So like, okay, yeah, fine. Hmm. It'll be fun. It'll make it significantly faster than anything else on a track day, which is not necessarily beneficial. Um, But then... I like the idea of playing with the settings. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did in my, <laughs> in my video, my, my video for the intercooler. I played with the settings, or at least I tried to. That was the plan, but yeah. the weather sadly scuppered it. Um, but I wanted to try and understand if being able to change your compression and rebound rates, you could do it separately front and rear, um, if that was a gimmick or if it was substantial. And I think it is substantial, particularly on a dry track day. Um, and particularly if you've taken some time to understand what compression and rebound mean and what making a particular change is likely to do. Yeah. If you've got your head around it, I would love to spend track day after track day. Tu- basically, you just spend the day tuning the car for the track and just trying to find the perfect setup. Yeah. And I think that would be really interesting and engaging and fun and, you know, if at, towards the end of a track day you feel like you're just doing the same thing, going around and around again, if you're fiddling with your, your damper rates, I don't think you'd ever get to that point. I think you just keep, you just enjoy trying to 
hone a car for a particular track in the particular conditions. I, I'm totally on board with it. I think it's mega. As, and it, that, it just adds, for me, it adds a whole other level of interest and learning. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably what, it's why I find actually some sim driving really interesting because you can very quickly test and retest things like that damper mm. changes and stuff and see if you can feel the difference but even then you've got to go do a lap a, a, an amount stop play with it restart the lap that, that, you know in a video game and that's pretty yeah. quick in, in a road in a car at a track day you've got to drive into the pits do god knows what amount of fiddling to yep. click stuff up and you're not changing diff settings um and then go out by which point things could have changed etc and I really want to learn and get better at car setup. Now, there's oh, loads man, of stuff so do I. outside of those particular things you can change. But yeah. as a starting point, being able to change those compression, mm. rebound, diff, whatever, those things, to play with that in a car, I would get so much more out of that than just doing a track day. Because ultimately, oh, track man, days, so much more. you're kind of having fun, but you're not really necessarily learning much or... Mm. It gives yeah. you something else to do. It would. And, you know, to really get, to really learn how to do that stuff, car setup, you need to race and you need to be working with a race engineer, probably, who properly understands it. But at least in the GT3 RS, you could begin to learn that process. Yeah. And I, I know lots of other cars have offered, you know, manually adjustable suspension before. Very few allow you to do compression and rebound separately. The RS does, and it also allows you to do it from the steering wheel. Yeah. And on the go. So you could, That's in it. theory, make changes lap by lap without coming in. Yes. Which is, that is a, a significant difference. Yeah. Oh, Just it's be massive. able to, on the start, finish straight, slow down a bit. Ding, 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 ding. Let's try a few different settings. And did, with that car, I, I think one of the things, because I read your article about it, I thought, I thought it, was, it was quite interesting. One of the things you were looking at was the spread. Yeah. It was like, it's, you know, I know on my Radical you've got 14 settings or something. But to be honest, and you can feel them, but it's like, it's stiff to really mm. stiff. That's, you know, that's <laughs> yeah, where yeah, you're yeah. sort of dealing with. Yeah, so I wanted to figure out if, um, if, the, if it had proper scope, proper spread yeah. between softest and hardest, um, or if it was too minimal a difference to actually be able to appreciate it and so what i did was i went full soft with everything just to feel what the ride was like what the handling was like um and then you make the most extreme change that you can because that gives you the the most um uh the most extreme back-to-back comparison so you go full hard compression and rebound front and rear and immediately the ride changes it's very different it's just jiggling more yeah um even the way it corners changes, it will, there's less grip, particularly in the wet. If you make it stiffer, there'll be less grip. So it'll understeer on the way into a corner. It might then snap right. into oversteer. Why? Because I know this is how it works, but I was thinking, when I was reading your thing, I was like, okay, but why is there less grip? If a car's stiffer... Why, if it's stiffer, is there less grip? Because there's less weight transfer. Why? And it's weight transfer that pushes the tyre harder into the ground. Okay, but uh, let's sort of test this a little bit. If you are in a car and you slam on the brakes, 
Yeah. And you do it so that you're not like locking the fronts. You're going to get whatever it is, 90% to the front or something. And in you saying if those shocks are stiffer, you're going to get less than the full amount to the front. So again, it's a it's a it's a complicated thing, right? And there are exceptions, um, and it, it's it's a it's just a a rule of vehicle dynamics. Roll is grip. Okay, you allow a car to roll. It might be forward or back under braking acceleration or in corners. Allow a car to roll. The weight transfer is more exaggerated, and the outer tires, the ones that are working in a corner, are being pressed harder by that weight transfer into the ground now it would therefore follow that if you want more grip you make the car softer so why is it that very fast track cars and road cars are stiff surely they they should be soft it doesn't matter that's not quite how it works it's because if the tire is already generating really strong good consistent grip you can make the chassis harder and stiffer and stiffer quite a long way before you erode that grip and you want to make it a bit harder because you want that control. You want precision, agility, response. So it's always a trade-off. It's always a trade-off. Racing cars are stiff because they have to have that immediate response, that alertness, that tight control. But if they're too stiff, they just won't grip. Now, if you've, imagine you've got a slick tyre underneath you and it's a, a warm, dry day. You have got outrageous amounts of grip from that tyre. So you can have a really quite stiff chassis because that tyre is still going to generate massive grip. Um, if it starts, if it gets slippery and you've got a very, very stiff chassis, you've got less weight transfer and so the tyre is not going to be pressed into the road with the same force. So it's, it's just a rule of car of vehicle dynamics, roll is grip. But then- and in, in the wet, you will always soften a car off just to allow it to move around a bit more yeah, allow yeah. a bit more of that weight transfer but then is it is it the I, you know, I need to I need to talk <laughs> to someone that like really you know but is it more about the balance of front to rear left to right now there is overall but yeah. like the thing what you're trying to do generally by let's say softening the front or you can do the opposite to the rear yeah. and it has yeah, the same yeah. effect is, is like let's say you want to add grip to the front you might soften to the front or you might harden the rear mm. now if you, when you talk to, let's say my driver coach, Ollie Hancock, and I go, what's fastest? And let's say in a radical, he's like full stiff, but you probably won't be able to drive it. Yeah. He's like, that is the fastest. But it's then a case of how much do you dial it down? But if, and- you, if you asked him in the rain, what's fastest? I bet he'll say you'd soften it up a bit. I think I think so. But I wouldn't be surprised if it, it then comes down to, like, how bloody good are you at putting the exact amount of input into the steering that's, like, not too much? Because if it's really stiff, it's really easy to put too much. Yeah. And then just yeah. lose the traction on which bit. But if you can, like, millimetre perfect turn and, and keep it on that threshold which is really hard when it gets really stiff that's the thing i think most people find is the car becomes much more snappy and you actually the inputs you can put in have to be so much smaller and so much more refined mm-hmm. so with my car we've like we've found some middle ground somewhere between 
rank amateur and professional. Um, <laughs> and Ollie's yeah. like, yeah, your, your mate, Jerome, he has it much stiffer, but I don't think you could drive it like that. And I'm like, what? What? Okay. <laughs> and then I come back and I'm like, mm, yeah, okay, I want it a tiny bit softer because I like to feel it move. Yeah. But then yeah, it's, I would. I would. But then it comes down to like how fine a resolution are you looking at? It's a, well, that's it. It's and the best topic. guys, the best guys are very, very good. And, and this is an important point about the GT3 RS. You know, you to be able to appreciate what those setting changes are doing for you, you have to be at a level already where you are consistent and you are quite quick. Yeah. You know, if you are, if it over a stint over five laps, you know, there's a five second variability in your lap time because you're not consistent and actually you're taking different lines the whole time, doing different things yeah. in each corner every lap. You're not going to have a clue what a setting change is, what difference a setting change is going to make. Yeah. Because you're not consistent enough. So you have to get to a point where you are driving basically the same lap after lap after lap. Then yeah. you can make a change. You think, oh, it's oversteering a bit here now. And then you start dialing it in. And you're quite right to say that um, all these all this configurability that you get with some cars, the GT3 RS, for instance, it's not just about how stiff it is. It's about balance. Um, and then it gets super complicated when you think, well, it's not just how stiff it is, but it's how stiff it is when the wheel's going up into the arch yeah, and how yeah, stiff it is when the thing, wheel's yeah. coming out of the arch. You know? And you, sometimes, that's the difference between compression and rebound. Um, and sometimes you want much more compression, damping, but you want to take out the rebound damping. Um, it's, it's a phenomenally complicated thing. And, you know, I still have to think quite hard about it. Um, and I've spent 15 years trying to educate myself on this stuff, yeah. more than that maybe. Um, and I think without lots and lots of race experience, it's so easy just to get totally lost with all this stuff. And this is why in everything that I've, I've produced about that car, the GT3 RS, I've said... Porsche has a responsibility to educate people on how to use this stuff. And it does. It's got to. Because to the average man on the street who's able to afford and buy a GT3 RS but has never even considered what compression and rebound mean, it's, it's a whole world of mystery that they're entering into if they start fiddling with those settings. And they're not going to find it but if interesting at- or educational. They're just going to find it frustrating. Well, they might because they could do what you did and go i don't know what this does so i'm just going to change this one thing full yeah. right full left yeah and not, that's and, fine but that's that's not exactly using it to its full potential no no no. but you're learning a lot actually you're going yeah, i don't know what so, compression does and you could do a lap and go full one way yeah full the other way and go oh well that, more of that does this yeah um yeah but i think um it's so trying by doing is a good way of learning. But I think, it, I think everyone who... You need to learn. Or people who are going to try and play with these settings should read up, educate yeah. themselves. Or get, some, get, get your mate who's been racing before to come and help you, you know? Whatever it takes. And then, because and then that, they'll realise they don't really know it. They're like, yeah, I exactly. think I know this, then but you, I don't. <laughs> then, yeah, then they're exposed, aren't they? Um, but it's, it's a fascinating topic and... Yeah, I think the more you know about it, the more um, the more you'll get out of it. Yeah, and it's it's actually it's it's one of the things your point about the the driver because the driver makes a, wor- a world of difference to all this stuff, and that was one of the things for me early on. And I still now go in and they go, "What do you want to do with that car?" And you're like, "Well, I'm not mm. I'm not 100 sure I'm driving it correctly, so I'm not yeah. necessarily going to give you a comment. You can look at it and make it up." 
uh, sort of diving back to the three and a half hour podcast I did with Colin Hode, one of the things we talked about was this. And he trains engineers. Uh, he, he does like normal driver coach, pedestrian people, whatever. Um, but he also does engineers for companies mm, um, and just things like Nürburgring testing. And he's like, one of the things we have to teach them is we have to teach them how to drive. I think they call it their engineering line um, is one of the the line they use. So they use, sometimes they use a completely different line to the racing line. They drive. Imagine you're driving down a road and you've got the dotted line down the center that separating the left and right lane. They drive the track on that line. Mm. the entire way around yeah, at, interesting. At, at, yeah. at grip limit but on that and the reason they do that is so they've got leeway on the inside and outside the entire time should they need it so mm. you, because it's not, a different discipline to setting a lap time isn't it it's a, it's a, and it's a completely different dis- discipline than they're testing the car but then he, they also they learn to be incredibly sort of robotic and precise with their inputs mm. and until you basically, they, I think, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it, but for the, the the level required for Nürburgring testing at this company that whoever he was training drivers for, they had to be able to drive a lap of the Nürburgring at grip limit with no unnecessary inputs. So every corner is drive in, yeah. turn the steering wheel in yeah. a fluid motion, and then turn it back to straight at grip limit. That is an unbelievable <laughs> discipline, actually, isn't it? That's, that's a skill in itself. I've never heard that before. That is fascinating. And then, yeah, because you, you think driving quickly around a track is just one discipline, but actually, that's totally different to setting a quick lap time. Well, I think if you can do that, yeah, of, of course, your yeah. level of your your sort of skill level, like if you look at a Formula One driver, it's like Lewis or someone. Someone that's really, really fast. And I know it depends on the cars and whatever, but when they're really, 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 really fast, the perfect lap looks like that. It doesn't have any corrections or anything. Mm. It's it's so on the limit that it looks smooth and there are no unnecessary inputs. <laughs> it's, a, it's an insane concept when you it, think it, about driving it, around a track. It is, yeah. And particularly when you're on the edge of grip. So yeah. you're fractions away from having to put in a big stab yeah. of corrective lock or whatever. Yeah, so, sorry, when I mean it's a totally different discipline, I, I was thinking more about lines. Oh, the lines you know, thing, yeah, that is totally that different. Is, that's totally different. And actually, I've never, I've never heard of the engineering line before, but yeah, that's a... It's, yeah, so being able to drive a lap and with they do no in the unnecessary wet. inputs, yeah, at grip limit, in the wet, I'd love to have a go at that, actually. <laughs> I'd pro- probably just, be terrible. Just, well, it's... If you, th- if you think about driving and trying to drive fast... That is the goal. Mm, yeah. And it's not necessarily what people think about when they're driving. They're normally like, can I carry a bit more speed? Can I whatever? But it's like, did I lose a grip, bit of grip there? Did I lose a bit of grip there? If I could not do that and maintain the sort of highest state of flow the mm. entire time, it is faster. The um, one thing that he said, because I s- said in the wet... I said a lot of... He said, I said, he said, <laughs> she said. Um, I find getting to grips... I don't really like track driving in the wet, but I find getting to grips with a car, let's say a new car in a new circuit in the wet, quite daunting because you don't necessarily know what the grip levels are. You don't know how quickly it's going to stop. You don't know how much it's going to step out, whether it's understeer, oversteer, all the stuff. 
And he's like, well, to start with, and he's like, you can do this on a track day, just make sure that you're not sort of, people have an idea that this is what you're doing. He's, he's like, drive that line. Drive that line mm. for like two laps. And yeah, I think a lot of racing drivers will tell you like, they pick up all their information for that they need in about three corners. It's the first, even mm. on the way out of the pits, they're full beans and they're like, okay, I know how much grip's on the rear. Then they've warmed up the fronts and then the first corner, they slam on the brakes and they go, okay, I know what the brake balance is like. Then they go around the first corner, maybe it's a hairpin and they go, okay, yeah, I know how much front end I've got before oversteer. And then they do a high speed corner and they push it and push it and push it until it either understeers or oversteer. And then, and then the guys that are pros go, Let's just extrapolate that to the next seven corners, and then they just drive flat out. Yeah, whereas you and me, we're like, <laughs> it's really wet out here. I'm Five laps in. <laughs> yeah, turn eight might be super slippery, so I'm not going to go quickly through there until I know. Yeah, yeah I, that's the difference, though, between um, professional drivers and those of us who do it for a bit of fun. And, it, yeah, it makes me think of, uh, you know, if you're a young GT, a young professional driver in a GT team, you're under so much pressure. They are analysing yeah. every single sector. And if one of your, on your outlap, there's a slow sector because you're trying to build up to it and feel the grip, yeah, they'll up. say to you, why is that slow? And if you do that too many times, you're fired. Because yeah. there's someone else who will be on it that first sector onwards. Yeah. And that stuff, that fries my mind, you know, that these people, they, even in tough conditions, even at the ring... They get in it and they are on it. And that's the discipline. And yet they have to do that. And I just, yeah, and I that, think that's, that's beyond me. When you go, let's say, GT cars, like a GT3, they've got some assistance and stuff. And I'm not saying that necessarily makes it, well, it does make it a bit easier. But these guys, like the people I know, will get in any car. And they're never driving the same car. Sometimes mm. they might be lucky to be driving one car for a season, but they're also jumping a lot of stuff in between. And then they get no testing. Like if I've got a professional driver on my team and I'm paying, they, it makes much more sense for me to do the testing because yeah. I'm going to gain way more time than they are because they're basically, you know, they might be a tenth off. That's it. Whereas I'm seconds off. So they get no testing. They just get in qualifying three laps go boom 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 <laughs> they are awesome those guys unbelievable they, they are i've had i have so much respect for anyone who's super quick in a gt car they are unbelievable the trouble is there are so many of them there, there are, are so many of them which is why a lot of them earn not very much you know per day sitting next to amateur drivers or whatever it's there is so it's such a it's such an enormous skill and I respect it enormously. But weirdly, um, there are lots of people who can do it, uh, and so it's a it's a difficult living to make. I think you know a lot of them have to do driver training stuff and yeah. coaching that they don't enjoy doing, um, which is bizarre given how skilled they are at something that's extremely difficult to do. And then you get yeah, so it's basically like, do you make it to F one? Yeah, no. If you don't make it to F1, maybe WEC. If you're not in WEC, EC, like you're not really earning very much money in anything else, really. If you're not in F1, you're not making loads and loads and loads and loads. You're making good. You can make a good salary and whatnot. Yeah. But then you're just sort of in it. But then you do get some. Lots do driver coaching, but then ultimately at some point in time, 
you know, people do different things, whatever. Um, but then you come across someone every now and then you come across someone. And this guy, Colin really stuck in my mind as he was incredible at explaining from a physics engineering point, why thing that, why cars do what they do and how you might go quicker or not. But then also a huge part of it of like psychology. Mm. So we had this chat and I was like, I've been trying to find someone that whatever. And we were talking about turning up on a test day and going faster. And he was like, well, how do you prepare for a test day? Mm. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, okay, we're doing this conversation now. Have you done some prep? I was like, yes. I've like looked up who you are, what you do. I've thought through some questions. He's like, he's like so what do you do for a test day? He's like, okay, I turn up and then I drive the car and then I try and go fast. He's like, right, let's wind this back a bit. Like <laughs> ignoring the amount of money you probably spend on a test day. And I was like, oh yeah, I do spend quite a lot of money on a test day. Like, why do you not do your homework? Why do you not get this stuff out, watch the videos, check your lines, talk through, look at your notes from the last time, run through it. Then when you get to the track, you're not doing lots of things. You're sitting down. So when you're in the car, you're in the zone and you know, right, that corner is actually a slight lift. And then and this is my turning point. That's my turning point. So it doesn't take you. My initial question was, I want to reduce the amount of time mm. that five laps mm. or whatever to get to fast, fast, fast. Cause you waste so much time. And he was like, well, do you approach Crap. it properly? And I was like, shit, yeah. I don't like, yeah. it, I do go out and try and sort of, uh, sort of warm up and work it out. I'm not like, I know that's flat, so I'm going to do it flat. Mm. Yeah. I think I'm probably more like that. I, <clears throat> even if I know it is, I have to build up to it. I would have thought, you know, and I, I think I'd back I myself. I don't necessarily to- mean by doing something flat. Cause you, the, yeah, on the yeah. day your grip levels whatever but mm. if you're in the right space and you've done all the prep and you know literally all your breaking points all the everything you're not thinking about what was you know what you have for mm. breakfast someone that's called you on the way some work thing you're just focus 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 you're gonna be fast it is then practice it's practice mm. at being fast straight away it's practice at go out warm the tires up like bang like bang, and if you're burnout. It, if you're going to go racing and if you're going to pay to go testing, it's an expensive thing to do. Why not approach it like a professional? It's a very good point. You absolutely should do your prep, take it seriously. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the psychological side of it is fascinating. And I, I remember doing some driver training <clears throat> 15 years ago when I was new in this industry and I had barely that driven funny, on, doesn't it? on the track before. <laughs> to, to be like, oh, I've been doing this for 15 years or whatever. Yeah, well... I can't believe it's that long. And I did it with a chap called Don Palmer. Some of your listeners will have heard of him. I did a day with Don Palmer. Probably 10 years ago. It's an intense experience. (laughs) And you start off, we did it at Bruntingthorpe, which I don't think you can use anymore. And we did it um, on a cold winter's day. And you start off in the cafeteria talking about beliefs and values. (laughs) And you're thinking, Don, we've got a track here. There's a car outside. Come on. Let's go do some skids. But he wants to have this very meaningful to him conversation about your beliefs and values and who it is that you aspire to be able to drive like and all this stuff. And actually, he, uh, he's right to do it because so much of it is attitude and state of mind. Um, and it all just makes me think that with coaching and with guidance, we could all be so much better because mm. there's stuff we haven't even thought about, like yeah. doing a preparation and 
yeah, the stuff that Colin was talking about. It's, you know, there is so much scope for us all to be massively better if we just get a bit of coaching. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah. And I think tools like your new GT3RS, if you can get an application and you can afford it and whatever, but or Sims. I think Sims are actually, for this sort of thing, when you're learning, whether it's setup or line or whatever you want to learn, really. Like one of the things I have spent a reasonable amount of time on a sim learning is what to do with my hands. Sounds like a simple thing. But yeah. actually, like, the more you think about it, it's not quite so simple. But you can run through some scenarios on a sim and do it and map mm. out what, you know, what are you going to let go or you're going to cross hands or mm. whatever pass it through and then you can repeat it. You can go and do the same corner over and over and over again at home, you know, without costing you any money. And then when you get in a car and you end up in a mm. situation, whether it's on track day or whatever, you can repeat the same thing, but you've done some muscle memory and you've done some brain thinking and it's the thinking about it. Mm. Mm. That's like, takes a while to sink in. Yeah. There's so much that we can do. You're right. There's so much we can do to improve as drivers without even getting inside a real car. Yeah. Just, ha- just having conversations with people about this stuff 100%. just makes you think about it. Because it's actually a cognitive discipline, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fearsomely complex thing to do. Um, and the better prepared that you are, the more that you've thought about it, um, the much better off you're going to be. Do you know what? I've spent so little time in racing sims. Um, mm. But last week, I went and drove one. And this isn't just like a gaming sim. This is next level racing sim. And this is next level for commercially available F1 sims. Nice. And I live just outside Bristol. Weirdly, this company that has built this revolutionary racing sim is 10 minutes from my house. (laughs) You know, it's not in Motorsport Valley. They're not based at Silverstone. They're in a little village in North Somerset. It's just weirdly 10 minutes from my house. Um. And Ferrari have bought one of their sims for their F1 team. And until now, um, F1 teams would make their own because there wasn't one good enough commercially available. This one, it's called Dynisma, is um, the first commercially available sim that's at that level. And it's far beyond any other commercially available racing simulator or even what um, a team could construct for itself, which is why Ferrari has bought one and other teams are interested. What do they cost? 
Between That's... two and six million. <laughs> there you go. Okay, talk to me. What, what was it like then? Unbelievable. So I've only ever, I've not driven an F1 team simulator before. You know, they all yeah. have them. Um, but I've driven driver training sims, which are, yeah. you know, a step above a typical gaming sim. Yeah. And I can't do them. I can't do them because they don't feel realistic. Um, they they don't... require a certain amount of learning. All yeah. of these require a bit of learning. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm just trying to learn to drive a sim. And I cannot understand yeah. how it relates to driving in the real world at all. This one was something else. So it's all about um, the latency and the frequency, I think. So it's all about how responsive it is, how realistic right. it feels. Um, and the, they had me drive an F1 car at Spa, mm. which was mega. Um, and what I found was that it's so realistic that, and it's so responsive that I found myself instinctively catching a car before I went into a slide um, without thinking about it, without yeah. realising consciously that the car had started to slide. So it's that responsive that your instinct, your instinctive reactions are still present and they're still doing the right thing, yeah. which is a proper head scramble for me. <laughs> but yeah, I found myself driving it and the car would snap in a corner and you'd catch it and you think, I didn't even think about doing that. Yeah. But somehow this simulator is giving me that information through the vibrations I'm feeling and through how it's, how the tub that you're sitting in is moving around me through the yeah. steering. Um, so it's so realistic and responsive that even your instincts are still uh, functioning. Um, and you can feel when you go over a sawtooth curb or a sausage curb, you can appreciate the difference yeah. and you can feel um, when the car is about to understeer. Like, you know, the instant you turn into a corner, if you've gone in too quick, even before it started to wash out yeah. wide, you just sense, oh, sh that was wow. too quick. And then it will start going, doing that yeah, understeer yeah. judder, you know, the worst feeling in the world. Um, so it was amazing to drive a sim and to feel like you were getting on top of it, and I think I was, but also then to realise that it's so realistic that you drive it like you would a real car. Mm. And for the first time, I was able to understand how a simulator might actually be a beneficial tool for mm. real race teams and real race drivers. It, it's, it's an Super amazing cool. thing. Yeah. Super cool. I think one thing, so I've, I've tried a couple of, those sort of driver development sims. Um, not, nothing like that. But my problem with the ones that I drove was they didn't feel, they didn't, they, there was not that connection. Yeah. There was something off about them for whatever reason. And I was meant to be driving, like in one of them, I wasn't meant to be in the car, like a radical. And I was like, okay. But like, it basically just didn't feel right. And I felt like my home setup at the time, which was a pretty basic one, it's got much better now. I don't know. Oh, I can see it. Yeah. You can see one behind there now. Um, that's that's leveled up a bit. Was better, and I, I do actually think the games that you can buy, um, whether it's Gran Turismo or whatever and stuff like that, now are actually getting so good. It's not the same, but it's like they're mm. getting so good that if you've got a half-decent setup, you do drive them 
like you would drive a car. Like it, it, mm. it one to one relates. It's not exactly the yeah, same, yeah, yeah. but you can take a lot of the information and then extrapolate it, or you can go learn some stuff. Like it's that thing. It's, it's driving faster. I had this thing where I'd not driven my car for like a year or year and a half in the pandemic, but I had done some sim time and I'd had a lot of conversations like this with people mm. about driving and my brain had moved on a step and like things had clicked in place about being faster. And when I got in the car the next time, I was faster. Mm. And they so were like, what the hell? Like last time, you know, whatever it was, like a second faster or something. Mm. And they're like, I don't understand. I was like, yeah, but like it's, if you've not moved your mental mm. understanding of how to drive faster and how to be faster on a track or whatever, if you haven't clicked that forward, you will not be faster. You can pound mm. around for as long as you like. Yeah. But if your brain is not trying to learn or trying to understand why and all of the stuff that seems simple, you're not going to get there. It's so true. Yeah, a lot of it is just applying thought and learning. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I can totally understand how just having conversations with people can make you faster. It just improves your understanding, doesn't it? Yeah. The, that, and I think a lot of people look at something like driving fast and maybe older days when people didn't have data and had a bit of less understanding of what they were actually doing, um, people would go, oh, yeah, no, you just get into this zen state where you just drive really fast. Um, and <laughs> I was t- had a, actually had, and I, I believe, I, I feel like he's associated with this company Dynasma, uh, Darren Turner on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I asked him about that question. I was like, when you're setting like a really fast lap at Le Mans or whatever, like what's going through your mind? Are you in some zen state? And he was like, no. Like, mm. As weird as that sounds, I'm not. He's like, I'm thinking, right, I've got a break at the 50-meter board, turn in a little bit, lift, blah, 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 nail that point, that bit of tarmac. But it's like dot, 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 dot. And I'm driving mm. between all these reference dots that I know. And the more I drive, even if you're going faster and faster, that, that, that makes sense. Like if you ask someone like Lewis what he's doing, I imagine he will tell you, he's like, yeah, I'm doing this. Like, I'm consciously doing this. So interesting. There's that Senna quote, isn't there, where he talks about qualifying at Monaco in 90 or 91. Um, and he says that it was out of body, you know, an yeah. out of body experience when he, he wasn't conscious. He was just allowing it to happen, which is the opposite of what you've been describing. So it might well be that there are different drivers who approach it in a different way. I think, and I imagine there's different states. Like you, yeah. With a lot of the people that maybe if you maybe if you've not done different things, if if you've just done let's say karting, racing, and you've done lots and lots and lots, and you've got really fast, but you've not done that breakdown. Because now we get so much data, so mm. much data from yeah, yeah. early days that you actually do start to get a bit like learning about suspension or whatever. You're getting data points for what felt fast, what was fast you do something and you're like, that was quicker. And then someone tells you, you can then see why that was faster or why it might mm. not be faster. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk to a few other racing drivers about this. Cause my yeah. understanding is that you have to make it an unconscious activity. Um, yeah. So I think, or maybe, at least like it's maybe, maybe down lines. your consciousness. 
Yeah, maybe racing lines and breaking points has to be a bit more conscious. You're certainly not thinking, okay, I need to put in 30 degrees of corrective lock here. That has to be an unconscious judgment. That has to be a feeling thing. Um, Because the fact of the matter is your unconscious mind can process so much more data. And so it can can make judgments at a speed and with an accuracy that your conscious mind just can't keep up with. Yeah. So if you can make as much of it as possible unconscious and you're almost just allowing your body and your unconscious mind to operate the car, you then have capacity to think about things like traffic yeah. or changing conditions or strategy or, yeah, even even racing lines and breaking points and stuff. Um, so it probably, ultimately, it's a blend of the two. Absolutely. And, and you I want think- to be- give as much as you can to your unconscious mind. Yeah, and and to be really fast, you've got to allow, you've got to be operating at a level. Whatever you're driving, you've got to be comfortable enough driving that thing that you've got 10% or whatever it is left for dealing with all the stuff that is not driving the car because ultimately you're racing, so it's people, conditions, whatever. The mechanics of driving a car needs to be so far down your list of priorities. You've got that nailed. You know, you've done the repetitions. Mm. You've done mm. 50,000 gear changes. You know how to gear change. Like, mm. you know, you've gone to Don Palmer and talked about horses walking in circles or something and uh, <laughs> learned to, like, suggest into the corner. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, hinting it. Yeah, 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 all that. But, like, you've done that. You've gone through the phase of learning, I'm going to do this. You've done it 50,000 times and you then do it. You mm. like look into the corner, you look through, you, all that sort of stuff. So that then you know what you're doing if you decided to ramp up the sort of gain on that part of what you're doing. But you're doing all of these things naturally mm. by the time you've got to this level. And the best have massive capacity left over. Massive. Yeah. And they talk about Schumacher and... Well, the best F1 drivers, you, you just know that they've got all this capacity left over. What are they doing with their hands? Yeah. <laughs> They're making constant changes. The best are thinking about strategy when they can't even... They don't even know what's going on around them necessarily. Or they're looking at the big TV screen, you know, the big screens that they have around the circuit and clocking what other drivers are up to. Yeah. The best are just... They're able to drive the car almost without thought and then apply their thought to other aspects of driving and competing in a race. Yeah. And that, that, that is extraordinary to me that they can do that. At, that the, is, at the level that they do it. Like, if you were all racing honestly. 10 horsepower... Yeah, we'll yeah, be able to do it, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. So, in other Porsche stuff, you, mm. you did another comparison, which was yeah. GT4 RS versus GT3. Um, yeah. What okay? What, what what do you think of those two? Um, oh, well, both mega. So we wanted to do the test because the GT4 RS was the car Porsche said they'd never do because they didn't want to make too good a Cayman because it might tread on the toes of the 911, which is always supposed yeah. to be the more senior car. Um, and so I suppose we wanted to see if they're similar in price, similar-ish, comparable. Um, they've if got almost. One. If you can get one, that's it. It's another matter. They're almost the same power. <clears throat> I think the 911 has 10 horsepower more or something, but it's the same engine. Yeah. Um, and so we wanted to see what made for the more invigorating driving experience on the road. We didn't drive them on track. 
Um, and it was a very, very interesting comparison. It was the first time I'd driven the GT4 RS. Um, <laughs> I remember being in South Africa in 2016 on a Porsche launch. And Walter Roll is there, the, you know, the legendary test driver, the two-time WRC champion. He's a Porsche test driver. Um, and at dinner, a few of us got chatting with him. And <laughs> he could be quite loose-lipped. You know, and he tends to give away secrets that he perhaps shouldn't. So the journalists love it when he turns up because you learn stuff. Um, and he let slip that there was a... This was 2016. He let slip that there was a Cayman GT4 RS coming. And I was working on Evo at the time. I'm a journalist. So I'm like, great. Well, I'll make a note, <clears throat> a note of that and I'll write a little news story that went in the magazine. And then a few months later when I saw Andreas Preuninger on a, a job, a studio shoot somewhere... He said, "Ah, oh, you're Dan, so you're the one who's writing about the GT4 RS already. <laughs> and he was really upset. I was like, oh, sorry, it's my job. So I've been waiting a long time to drive this GT4 RS. Um, and it is, it is mega. But again, it's like, for me, it's like the 765LT. It's a manic car. Mm. And, you know, and with those intakes there, it's loud. And the ride is tough. The lane outside my house... Um, at the top, it's super bumpy and it's a really poor surface. And I love driving cars across there just to get a sense of how stiff they are, how they ride. And this Cayman just thumped me about. And I actually laughed out loud because it was, <laughs> it was hilarious how stiff it was, how unyielding it was. Um, and of course, once you get up, pick up a bit of speed and the road surface is a bit better, the ride just settles beautifully and it becomes lovely and fluid and composed in the way that... A, Porsche motorsport car should do. Nevertheless, I always found it quite tough and busy um, and just a frenetic car, whereas the GT3 was a little bit more supple, um, a bit calmer. It wasn't so manic in terms of the soundtrack. Um, I, I preferred the sensation on turn-in with the rear axle steering and with the double wishbone front suspension on the 911 so i just preferred the feel of it even when you're not mm. pushing really hard just that sensation of turning a car into yeah. a corner and how it responds i preferred the gt3 um and so i thought the gt3 is a better looking car as well i mean the gt4 rs looks nuts doesn't it like a doesn't it nuts like a le mans car it's crazy but it also looks daft <laughs> you know with wings sprouting out and the yeah. intakes everywhere um and so, you know, the, the, the Cayman is a phenomenally capable car. Super, it is exciting, but I would never, ever, ever choose one over a GT3. Never. The GT3 for, for a me track is. day? Uh, well, I've not driven the Cayman on track. Um, so possibly, yeah, possibly. I don't know, but certainly for the road, GT3 every time. And actually, Andrew disagreed. He he preferred the GT4 RS. Um, he it won the test for him, but no, not for me. Interesting. It does. For every I've, I've not driven one. I've not been in one. Everything that I can hear it is is sort of like it's intense. It, when yeah. you want it, when you're like on it, it's intense. Yeah. And I guess for different people that weighs different ways. Like, mm. is it too much? Is it actually just? unbelievable for like 30 minutes and then you're like thanks very much i'll go and get in something else 
Um, yeah. But for the, the, the trouble for me with, with that car and cars of its ilk is that particularly when you're driving on the road, and this is the key point, if you have to be absolutely on it for them to be at their best and the rest of the time they're just a bit noisy, a bit annoying, a bit uncomfortable, I'm not interested. I'm not interested if I have to drive at nine or ten tenths because I don't want to drive that fast on the road with 500 horsepower, with 700 horsepower, with cut two tyres that have got phenomenal grip because you're going so fast. You know, if you string a few corners together, second, third, fourth gear in one of these cars, you're through 100 miles an hour in no time. Mm. And if you get caught or if you go off, it's a disaster. It is a disaster. And so I, A, prefer cars that are more rewarding, lower than that limit, and B, love, love cars that are super engaging and fun and exciting when you're not going that fast at all. So that's, yeah. that's where I am with it these days. Maybe I've just got a little bit older, a bit more sensible, but I don't like cars that you have to absolutely hammer on the road for them to be exciting. Because I'm, I'm actually just not prepared to do it anymore. But then even, you know, of those two, and I guess, I don't know, which, which transmission did you have in the GT3? Uh, PDK. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, not, it's no slower. But it's, it's just more, there's more about it that's enjoyable at lower speeds. Interesting. Um, but then both of those are vastly capable at road speeds. Um, mm. And so a car that's, I, I've only driven one reasonably new one. And it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a sad thing. I, I felt Fiesta ST. Yeah. When I found out that that was <laughs> the last, like not happening again, I, there's not many sort of cars that have disappeared. I guess if a 911 disappeared, I'd be like, what the hell? But I really like the Fiesta ST. Oh, mate. I love that car. It's so I almost good. bought one, actually. I almost bought one a few months ago. But yeah, th- they are fantastic. And that is, that is probably the best example of a car that's fun without going super fast. And honestly, I'm, I'm, just, I'm more interested in that kind of experience for the road. Hmm. So I, I love the ST, and it's such a shame that they're killing the Fiesta. You know, it's, they've got their reasons, of course. And, I, and they'll tell us that they'll still be, they'll replace it somehow, eventually. There'll be a little sporty ST one day. I, ca- I can't see it being the same, but maybe it will be. So yeah, I'm gutted about that car. Yeah. I went to my first WRC event. Like- I saw two weeks ago, something like that. And that re sort of kindled my love for, I've always sort of appreciated them, but like small little hot hatchy type fun things because all the cars at these rally events are small, whether it's Mm. Yaris GRs or Puma that doesn't look like a Puma. (laughs) Um, Looks kind of like a Fiesta ST Um, and, and all that. But also the people around the event are all in, there's a couple of people in like 208s and stuff like that. And I, I saw the 208s and was like, because I've got an E208. I was like, mm. oh, interesting. They've lowered it. It looks pretty good. Put a little spoiler on it. Put some little flaps. I was like, I could, I could roll with that. And then I'd have no range, so <laughs> I'd have to ditch it. But it did make me think. And like, I, had, I had a Fiesta ST edition yeah. alone for a weekend. And 
I really enjoyed it. Like, really seriously enjoyed that. And not... Like, it was... It doesn't compare in terms of like, cars to a mm. GT3 or whatever. But in terms of fun, oh, I really nailed the fun at, like, road speeds. Mm. And, like, without being a complete knob. That's what they're great at. That is what they're great at. I've had so many memorable drives in cars in those cars those STs I just I just adore them and you know when you you feel like you get to the end of a road and you feel like oh I hammered it through there and no one knows because it doesn't make any noise you know and you've not come piling up behind loads of traffic because it's actually not that fast not compared to a McLaren or a GT3 or something you can hammer those cars without drawing attention to yourself, without taking risks, without upsetting people. And I, I'm totally in for that now. You know, I, I, increasingly, I feel like I want to be somewhere fairly remote, away from other people, if I'm going to drive a very, very fast car quickly on the road. You know, if I feel like people are watching, and especially in a very noisy car like a GT4 RS... I just feel like a knob these days. Yeah. I just feel like a knob. I just feel like I'm annoying people or, you know, someone's going to call the police or something. So I pick it's my really moments tricky. in those cars. I pick my moments. It's really tricky to do. And like something like a 765 LT, mm. unbelievably fast and yeah. capable. Yeah. Yeah. And so to feel like you've exercised a car like that, you've taken risks, you know? Oh, yeah. You really have. And I, I'm increasingly unprepared to do that. I will, because it's my job, and actually it's bloody exciting when you do. <laughs> but you have to pick your moments. You have yeah. to pick your moments. And those are few and far between. Even when you get up into the hills in Wales, you still have to be careful. Yeah, and like you, just can't, you just can't explore the limits in these cars like you would on a track on a road. You can't and if commit you do, to that level because they. Yeah. If you do, you're. You're an idiot. I don't know. It's a matter of time, isn't it, before you have a big stack? I think. Yeah, or, or, or lose your license or whatever. But that's probably slightly less likely than randomly having a whatever and the, a cow in the way. Well, exactly. And the the natural extension of all this is so. Which way are we going? Well, we're going electric, and that means more weight, and it means much more power because that's basically the only trick they have give it loads and loads of power yeah um okay they're quiet so that's a good thing you, no one's going to necessarily know if you've just deployed a thousand horsepower up the hill behind their house you might not know <laughs> though <laughs> well yeah so i don't know it doesn't the, fill me with there's confidence a, there's a fun there's a fun ev fact of my fun ev fact of the week the um ev hummer you can now buy it in the UK. People are importing it or something. And apparently, it weighs 4.1 tonnes. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> but the key part of that is it's over 4 tonnes. And apparently, if it's over 4 tonnes, you need a different licence. You need, a, like, an HGV licence to drive it Bloody on the road. Bloody hell. <laughs> this is a Hummer. And you literally need a different licence to drive it. Another fact about it is it because it's an American car... If you've imported one, it only comes with a certain type of charger. You can't use any high-speed chargers. You can't use CCS with it. 
So you can only charge at like seven kilowatt hours and it's got a huge Massive. battery. Yeah. So it's going to take days. It's either, it's, I think it takes like, it's going to take a day on a fast, fast home plug-in. Or if you use a three pin, it's literally going to take like three days and probably melt your house. <laughs> I had a Genesis GV60 here a little while ago oh, at my house. Okay. And I don't have, um, I don't have a charge point yeah. here at the moment. And so I plugged it in just through a three pin, mm. you know, granny charged it and something wasn't right, either a setting on the charger or a setting on the car. And I didn't fit, I relief through the, the manual and got online, tried to figure it out and I didn't manage to. Um, and this was on a Monday and I plugged it in and it said it will be charged by Friday. Ah. It was, <laughs> it was charging at 1.3 kilowatts. It was, it was ridiculous. So there was something not right about it, but. Yeah, how were you finding your? I think you posted about it the other day. But you're enjoying your Eto8, aren't you? For yeah, and, 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 stuff. and my lease is coming up mm. in April, so I'm looking for the now the replacement. And do I buy something? Do I lease something again? My initial idea with the lease was let's just see how this stuff goes. I think by the time my lease will be up, there'll be more cars on the market. I'll have learned a bit about EVs. Maybe the charging will have changed. Etc. 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 Now I well I sort of could then I can charge at home with a wall, whatever seven kilowatt uh, charger, um, and I really like the car. It's mm. like a small. It mainly gets used for short journeys and around town. It's not no like dynamic driving or anything like that. Yeah, um, and for that it's brilliant. The ride is really good. It's small. The interior is actually really nice, and. It does everything. It just does everything mm. um, that we sort of need it to. Range, not great. Like, I think you, I probably did get 150, 160 miles. It's fine if it's a, your or little town 200 car, in it? town. Yeah. Um, but, and I've got really good at learning like <laughs> where I am. and it, it cannot predict its range correctly. It's really? that is something that Peugeot cannot do. You get in a... Porsche or whatever, mm. they the number they give you may not be a number you like, but it is pretty much You'll what you're going to get in those yeah. conditions. The, the Genesis and the Hyundai, uh, sorry, the Kia, their sister cars, um, well, they use the same tech. They, they're the same. They, they don't, they'll show you 190 miles, 200 miles on a full battery, which isn't what the, the, bat, you know, the advertising, yeah. the brochure says, but you will get it. Yeah. If you drive reasonably sensibly, you will get that. So that's what you need, isn't it? You just need a reliable range readout. And I do it the sort of back way of, I know how big the battery is. I know mm. what percentage of battery, half, quarter, whatever. And I know the efficiency that I can drive at yeah. in different conditions. Like around yeah. town, four to five watts, miles per kilowatt hour. And on the motorway, about 3.8, about that. So I know if I'm on the motorway and I drive at six, 70 or 60 or whatever, I can get 80 miles on half, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I don't really yes. know 100%. You start, that's I, right. You start doing the calculation yourself, don't you? Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to replace it with. That's the question. I, do, I would like to have a small EV because I quite like having an EV in mm. town and like no emissions and charge yeah. at home and... There's some benefits of like it always being full if you want it to be pre-charging, whatever. All that stuff's quite nice. Um, but then I saw that, you know, like you see like, okay, Fiesta ST is disappearing. 
like, oh, I quite enjoyed driving a Fiesta ST. <laughs> Maybe something like that. And like, you know, whatever. They're tiny. They get pretty good fuel economy anyway. Yeah. Like an up GTI. Something that's small, but a mm. lot of fun and light. I, I, I don't know. I test drove a couple of Fiesta STs. <clears throat> and I, for a moment, it's funny, isn't it? When you're thinking about your next car, you'll spend an evening reading up about them or looking at the classifieds and you go to bed convinced that's going to be your next car then you wake up and think what was i thinking you know until i got to that point with the up gti because they're yeah they're silly fun little things um and i'd like to have one but it actually wouldn't suit the driving that i do you know i do a lot of motorway driving which is why i end up with a golf gti which is a much better more sensible option for me um but yeah I, i i definitely for at least an evening i thought an up GTI, that's what I need. Um, I, I love those little cars. And, I, you know, if I, if I lived in the middle of a big city particularly, I'd, and I had space and I had a few cars, I'd want a little EV. I'd want one yeah. because they, they are the best cars for just zipping around town in. Um, yeah. And particularly... And con- no congestion charge, parking's free, exactly. all that sort of stuff's useful. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There, there really is sort of purpose there and utility. Um, for me right now... I don't particularly have any use for a little electric car, you know, mm. nor do I have anywhere to charge it, nor do you've I have space to, on the driver. have that. And yeah. like you probably like me, I don't know whether you so much so now, most of my drives are either really long down a motorway with a 20 minutes at the other end to go mm. and drive something else yeah. or visit someone or whatever, or they're really short, really short. So yeah, same. Uh, with the EV, I've so, I so started to get like size creep of what I was considering. i see like a Model 3 and be like, well, actually, Model yeah. 3, I could take it on longer journeys. And then I'm like, yeah, but you've, you've actually got a car that you can do that in. It's like <laughs> the family car, my E63, yeah. like fits all the stuff and you get great fuel economy, but it's actually not, not that bad. Um, so don't, unless you're replacing that car, you need to do small EV that will fit your stuff in and then comfy big car for long journeys. Yeah. But it's very easy to get tempted to yeah, yeah, either way. And then to... you've got overlap between your cars, haven't and you? You, you think, that. what am I doing here? Yeah. So what are the other small EVs? What else is out there? So the same, that, that same car spawns the Corsa. Corsa, e. yeah. yeah. Um, actually, the E208 is getting a, a facelift. With a, it's getting, there's a new E308 coming out. And the E208 is getting the motors from the 308 and the battery from the 308. So it's getting a slightly bigger battery and slightly more efficiency, whatever. So it's going to get, on paper, 250 miles of range rather than 220. So Mm. 10% more or something, which actually would be another 10 miles, probably for me, 10, Mm. 10, 15 miles or something. Um, Otherwise, like in terms of small cars, there's the Fiat 500. Honda E. Honda E, both of those just have no range though. Yeah, like, it's true. They're like 100, 100 miles, miles yeah. 150 miles, which in real world is going to be 90. Mm. Which, Not enough, is it? That, that then, unless you literally use it just for around town, mm. and like, should you really have a car that you can only just drive like to the shops and back? Should you maybe just walk at that point? I don't know. Like, <laughs> or cycle, yeah. Like at least with 150, 160 miles, I can go two and a half hours down the motorway and possibly come back mm. or at least drive a really quite far and then charge at the other end. 
So you can take it to stuff if you want to. Um, well, another car that I convinced myself one evening I was going to buy was an i3. You know, I actually yeah. I really like the i3. I think they're fun. Got a little range extender. Yeah, but it's... I, yeah. But that I, was a cool I, car. They are cool. They are cool. And the i3s is a fun little thing to drive. Um, but I, it just... It, it's not even close to making sense for me. For the driving that I do, for work, you know... It doesn't I, make sense for me. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, if I've got to... And it would be my only car. So it's, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. it's not even no. close to making sense for me. I'd like one, but at the moment, I'm, I'm so far off. Yeah. One of those being the right car. I did think about small hybrid cars yeah so whether whatever it is mercedes audi blah 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 but and that i thought you know what with like modern hybrids they get maybe 30 maybe 50 miles of range most of the time would be under ev so actually city Mm. stuff would work and then if you want to do a long motorway journey um occasionally people borrow my car which comes with quite a long list of apps you need to download and like (laughs) pamphlets and like you you know maybe just don't bother Um, but the problem with those i think they are a very good solution Mm. but you lose a lot of boot space and when you've got a small car even a big car so you look at like any of the big stuff that's got a hybrid whether it's like a range rover or anything you lose such a chunk of the boot Mm. and like if you've got a big car you generally fill it Mm. And then if you lose yeah. half that space, like... It's just no good for you then, is it? It's not that good. It's so funny. Yeah, I, I, I quite... I, I like the idea of, of plug-in hybrid because, you know, as you say, just being able to do your local journeys on electricity and not spewing anything out the exhaust yeah. pipes in town, that makes a lot of sense to me. It really does. But, yeah, you're right about the boot space. And also, they're expensive, these cars. They are expensive. And I... And if it's going to be your only car, and I, I only have one car, it's just, that's just not what I want, you yeah. know? I want something that's going to be fun, that's going to be mm. usable, that's going to be comfortable. And that's exactly what I've got with my Golf GTI. It's absolutely perfect for me right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a little electric car, even a hybrid, they're just, they're just not right for me at the moment. And I, I think a lot of hybrids, I found, I've driven a couple of hybrids recently, actually... A non-plug-in, so like a sort of pure conventional mm. hybrid. Actually, I think that's quite good because you don't have any of the rubbish about charging it and only getting 20 miles. And if you have to charge your car every day and only get 20 miles of range, that is a bit of a pain. Mm. Um, so like that sort of works, but they a lot of them feel like crap EVs yeah. rather than... <laughs> you might get a performance car. You've got a performance-branded car that is a hybrid, and you can drive it under EV power. But when you drive it under EV power, it feels like a car the tenth of the value. Like, you've yeah. paid for an expensive motor, but you've got a crap one. Yeah, and you don't have the benefits of an electric car. It's not that no. quiet because it's running through the transmission. Um, it's not fast because it's only a little motor. It doesn't have good range because it's not a proper EV or a plug-in. So, yeah, I totally understand that. It's... And then they all they all just seem compromised somewhere, don't they? It's it's you know it's part of the process of us getting to where mm. we need to be and and whatnot. But like, God forbid, you own a hybrid and the hybrid system fails. That is that's a write off, and, and there's no warranty. Yeah, that is a yeah, write off. You're, you're stuck. It's like a twenty something grand bill. My parents have just got um, a Nissan Leaf, 
electric mm. car. Um, you know, most of their journeys are just around town. Um, so it's ideal for that. But occasionally, you know, they'll go off. This weekend, we're going off up to London to for my granddad's birthday. Um, and, you know, they'll do other trips at weekends away to see friends or go away or whatever. Yeah. And so they're learning about EV life at the moment. Yeah, it's really yeah, yeah. interesting seeing the messages that turn up on the, the <laughs> Prosser family WhatsApp group. They'll be at a, outside the McDonald's in Swansea, you know, wondering why it's only charging at two kilowatts. <laughs> and they're messaging me saying, does this seem right to you, Dan? Is that what's going like on here? 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and they'll say, we've been here an hour. It's only gone up a few percent. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's interesting to see someone starting off on that EV journey and figuring it out. And they've got a lot to learn and they will get much, much better at it and planning and just knowing what kind of charger they want yeah. to be aiming for. Um, so, I, you know, I just hope that over the next few months they suss it and they don't get frustrated with the car itself and feel yeah. like they've made the, the wrong decision. I'm sure they will get, I'm sure they will suss it. But it's a it's a funny it's a funny thing to witness someone go through that experience. It is. My mother in law wants to borrow our ETOX car broke down, um, and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you can borrow it. And then she said, okay, but I want to drive to Aberdeen in one day. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, like <laughs> train. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, she got the plane, and I was yeah. like, okay, academically, I would like to try it. But when I started looking at it, and the best app, I think, is a better route planner. Okay. One for your parents. Um, it, it, it's, I think it's the best one. But I was, it was telling me I, I needed to charge five times, something like that. The actual charging time overall is not insane. Hmm. It's like an hour or something in total. Yeah, yeah. And you're just stopping for 15 minutes here and there, which if you're driving for 10 hours... Stopping every two hours for 15, 20 minutes is actually quite nice. I'd want but to do was, that anyway. Yeah, but it was five different companies of mm. Charger. And, I, and I, I started trying to explain this to her. I was like, so if you want to do this well, you need to download all of the apps for all the things you need. You, sh- you might be able to pay on a card, but you might not. And if you don't, you need to register now. Like, do it all at home. Register, get the app, the Tesla one, whatever. And then you're like, okay, no. And I... I, I I was, I was then like, I quite, I kind of want to do this trip. I kind of want to do it. Like, mm. just It'll be an interesting exercise to see it. Um, and I'm quite in, like, into the experience yeah. of of working it all out and and doing it all and driving at the right speed and charging enough and whatever, just to see how it is. Because I, I think when you look at something like an E208, and I think I will replace it with the, the next E208 because the ne- little bit more range and whatever, hmm. and still have a small car will probably work. But if you look at something like a Model S or a Model 3 or something that will do 250 miles or, or maybe 300 yeah. miles of actual driving, you only stop, you only need to stop twice. So then actually the charging strategy changes a little bit. Um, and then you, you're only charging the sort of amount that you would almost stop mm. a long well, distance drive then. when you've got that sort of range and you can yeah. charge somewhere fast. It's not as long as it all works. It's not a problem. Mm. It is. It is fine. I remember talking to a friend who lives in Edinburgh, and he had to come down to London. He's got a Model Three, um, and he was a bit worried about it. But the 
the nav in that car, in any Tesla nav, it's super clever, isn't it? And it shows yeah. you, probably like the app you're describing, it shows you where you're going to stop, how long you have to be there, yep. um, and how long the whole journey is going to take. And it's, it's not that bad at all. Um, but in the smaller cars, it'd be, fu- it'd be a fun exercise to do at once, go from yours to Aberdeen. Yeah. But if you have to do that a couple of, every few weeks for work, it's going to get tiring quite quickly, I would have thought. Or you get very, you're not going to choose that car. You're not going to choose a car with tiny range for that journey. But you probably then learn which stops. But the Mm. the key bit is the tech, isn't it? So the Peugeot Nav, no, you're not not using that. The Tesla (laughs) Nav, you're using that. But you need the Nav in your car to be good enough that you're not naving by your phone. Yeah. And it needs to, the car needs lots of them. Like with the Tesla, it pre-conditions the batteries before you get there so that it can take full whack when mm. you get there. Yeah. Whereas if you're not using that stuff, mm, you can arrive and then you plug it in and the car has to learn that it's about to be plugged in. It doesn't know that it's being plugged in. And I know that that side of the tech is getting much better and you're starting with cars to be able to press a button to be like, I'm going to charge in 10 minutes. Like, condition the batteries. Um, you don't have to condition a petrol tank, do you? No, no. It's uh, but then you can't get a, a zero emissions petrol car at the moment. Well, you, you <laughs> synthetic, synthetic fuels. fuels, yes. But uh, I want us. Me, I want me and my partner Imogen to have one fun car between us and one practical electric car between us. That's that's ideally what I would have, and maybe with a classic locked up somewhere. Doesn't but quite work. Not well. It doesn't. It certainly doesn't work for us. She, at least once a week. Um, mostly she works from home, but at least once a week she's up into the Midlands for work, and that's probably a two hundred and fifty mile round trip, and she can't charge at her office. Um, and she just she just doesn't want to be stopping for even twenty minutes, half an hour, to to charge the battery. And that's you know I've, I've, fair enough. Maybe fair I would, but she doesn't want to. Um, and so at the moment, they're just, it just doesn't quite work for us. But I, I would soon, eventually, like to have an electric car of some sort because they have their place. And for a certain yeah. type of driving, they are preferable to yes. a combustion, combustion engine car. They are. And they, the refinement you can have in a petrol car, uh, uh, EV, hmm. is you can have a more refined EV than any combustion engine. Just, yeah. just fact absolutely true yeah no question about it um but yeah i think in the two car garage so i would like to at some point replace my e-class with whatever a large family carrying nice ev if if this is where we're going and it doesn't change to some other tech or whatever Yeah, yeah but it needs to have a lot of space and it needs to have a decent amount of range and it needs to be able to do the london to glasgow yeah yeah without in charge and stuff like that and at the moment that doesn't really work whether it's down to space in the car. There just isn't as much space as not being an EV. Mm. And range and charging and price and, and all of that stuff just doesn't... I think it's an EV fits there. really well into a three-car garage. Yeah, it does. Small yeah. town <laughs> yeah. EV works perfectly. Then a big, comfortable something with a diesel engine or whatever. Mm. Diesel hybrid's probably the most, but then you lose a bit of space. And then your sports fun car. That's ideal, isn't it? 
That is the idea. That works at the moment. I think you're absolutely right. Because, I, you know, I'd love to have... Like your car, 911, you've got GTS, haven't you? Yeah. Lovely. And then something electric and more practical for the family car. Yeah. But therefore, it would have to be the family car that we take down to Cornwall yep. for a weekend away. Exactly. And, as, you know, lots of electric cars are just going to be a total pain for that. Yeah. A total pain. So, yeah, you're right. For me, two-car garage, it's not quite there yet. But right. maybe as the tech evolves and the, I think the charge infrastructure improves, maybe it does get there soon, I don't know. Yeah. I think we're... This is what I'm sort of waiting for, is like next gen. Yeah. And I don't think we'll necessarily see next gen. Like, I think what we'll see is like eight iterations of the same car. Mm. We will, but like you, we're getting these yeah, tiny and, and from, improvements from version each year, one to eight. Yeah, from version one to eight, it's a, it's a step. It's yeah. a step change. Like with something like the Model S. Yeah. It, it, it hasn't actually changed, but it has. It's had a long yeah. interior change, but the tech and stuff in it has changed a lot. Like a friend of mine has a Taycan, and he was saying since the software update recently that all of them got, it was on the new cars, but all the old ones get, he's like, I get 20 more miles of range. <laughs> that's mega, isn't it? Which is, that's a lot. That's really cool. That makes so a big difference. 200 to 220 now. It's like, yeah. it's like that's what you get. Like, that's awesome. That is awesome. But you're right. It's When is the... There isn't going to be a giant leap forward. It's going to be steady evolution. And over time, that adds up to a decent step forward. Um, yeah, but for Charging me, it's just, is the one. it's just not I there think yet. If you... If I could charge... Like me being at home, if everywhere I go has charging, mm. then it, it it removes a lot of the faff. And then maybe something like an ID buzz, but like mm. the next gen that has yeah. well, 300 miles car, on it? a smaller battery. Mm. That's what I want. Yeah. But it's not, but the range isn't there yet. Not yet. <sighs> I think it's going to be a little while as well. You know, I t- lithium ion batteries, they're improving gradually every year. Um, but they're not going to suddenly offer twice the range that they did the year before. It's just not going to happen. No. But if they and do it's, 5 to 10% a year every year... Mm, that's what they're doing. Yeah. After five years, that's a... That's a, that's a good well, chance. It's, it's more than 50%, but it's a, that's a huge difference. Mm. Yeah. And then you get the... Well, actually, we can run a smaller battery, which is lighter, which then is then more efficient, charges fast, like... yeah. Mm. You get this the slow stuff, but yeah, it'll be a gradual evolution, and and, and in five years the charge network is unrecognisable. Yeah, you know, and if you know if you know that somewhere on your route there's going to be a quick charger that works, it's a diff- totally different game. Yeah, if you can turn up, tap a card, and it works. Yeah, and even the concept of how we fill up, I think, will change very differently to petrol cars. Because petrol cars, you have to stop at a petrol station, and then you're stuck there. An EV, like on a long journeys now, we've got a kid, we often stop at like a National Trust place, get a coffee or something, whatever, mm. something like that. So actually, you might stop somewhere that's nowhere near anything, just a little cafe or mm. a lunch spot, yeah. whatever, yeah. but you plug your car in in the car park. Mm. And you, and you charge, don't mind being there for half an hour, do you? And you're there for 45 minutes and actually mm. that's way more than you need. Mm. Um, we won't get fast charges everywhere though. We won't get like 50 plus kilowatt, 350 like kilowatt hour chargers everywhere because they're obscenely expensive and that is yeah. an insane amount of power. That is, that is insane. 350 is wild. Like, yeah, they, they won't be prevalent. But and we don't really need them either. You don't. No, you don't. I, um, 
I had a Kia EV6、mm. uh, recently, and I did a, an auto solo in it. You know,、um, <laughs> uh, that's like as grassroots as motorsport gets,、um, and it was wicked fun.、Um, but the night before, and I knew it was at Donington. Donington Park, and I had to get from Bristol up to there, so I knew the battery would be down to thirty percent. So I had to fill it up the night before, so I had、yeah. plenty of range for the event itself.、Um, and I found a hundred and fifty kilowatt charger outside a McDonald's, and I plugged it in. Literally twenty five minutes later, enough time to eat a filthy burger. I, you know, had all the charge that I needed. One hundred and fifty is plenty. Yeah. yeah, that is plenty. I. I can't see why we need 350, but I said that about 4G. You know, why do we need that when 3G is fine? <laughs> well, I think if you're in a hurry, and and it's also then, do you get 350? Like yeah, you yeah. might get 350 for this is. I think we'll see a big change. It seems like a lot of universities and stuff are running on the software of charging and the algorithms of how they get the power into the pack, and it sounds like actually one of the big Things we might step change over the next couple of years is a real sort of breakthrough in how they charge the battery.、Mm. So it's still a 150 kilowatt hour charger or 350 or 50 or whatever, but at the moment it can only the battery needs to be preconditioned or it takes five minutes and then it can accept the full whack for 15 minutes and then it slows down and slows down and slows down and slows down.、Yeah. So to get a chunk, let's say naught to 80 is Reasonably fast. With this change in the algorithms of how they're going to charge it, they'll be able to put a lot more power in a lot faster for longer.、Mm. So you'll get three、yeah. fifty for twenty minutes rather than fifteen from the same、and、charger in the same car. You're just describing the sort of evolution of technology and engineering, aren't you?、Mm. And it's just finding efficiencies and better ways of doing things. We're right at the start of that curve with EV, and as those. Lessons are learnt, and that that evolution takes place. It might not be that that we have this giant stride forward, but as as clever people learn more about this stuff, it do, it does steadily improve. If you、and、do one percent, two percent a year improvement, five percent, let's just say five、yeah. percent, and then you just keep doing it and you keep doing five. That's realistic, I think. In like ten years' time. You've done an insane amount. Like the 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 thing you're looking at and still knocking away at is so different.、Mm. It's a different world. Then it's a different world. And actually, I, you talk to engineers in that space, and they say that a lot of the development isn't going to be around battery density or how much energy you can store within them. Or it's not. That's not what it's going to be about. It's going to be about. Creating batteries that use fewer rare earth metals, yeah, yeah, yeah. because mining that stuff is terrible. That's really bad, and it's a good thing that these batteries are being made in a more sustainable, cleaner, greener way.、Um, and so, a big chunk of the progress is going to be around that stuff. Yeah,、um, you know, and it's not. Yeah, so not necessarily giving us fifty percent more range within the、yeah. next couple of years, but. You know, over time it will get there, no question. Yeah, and and one thing, just a small note on on that one. Lots of people, the people I come across that are like ragingly anti EV. Yeah, like to an extreme. I'd say I'm like a car person. I just I like tech. I like all the stuff. Whatever's the best solution, I'm, I'm happy with. 
I'm not specifically anti anything. Go like, you know, all these rare earth, earth metals used in batteries, which is valid. But lots of these things are also used in the refining of oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To create petrol. Like, and yeah. So ignoring the stuff you're pulling out the ground, they use a lot of rare earth metals mm. to refine. Now, I don't, I don't know the, hundred, the exact numbers, so you can fire yeah. back at me. But like, they are used in other stuff as well. It's not yeah. just EVs and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's yeah. an interesting one. Um, I feel like we've waffled on for a good solid amount of time. Good. Um, let me give you, I'm not going to give you the full five questions, but I'll give you a few questions to, uh, to sort of wrap it up. Uh, one, one car for the rest of your life, sports car. <sighs> I would, right now, I would have the one that really interests me at the moment is 911 GTS. Mm. So rear seats, not stupidly stiff, not stupidly loud. Yeah. Um, but fantastic to drive. I know you've got the you've got the 991 GTS, yeah. haven't you? I ordered a 992, and it's I don't think it's going to turn up. Really? Yeah, I was in February. Oh, uh, dear. Just the number of cars coming through. Mm. Mine doesn't sound like it's ever going to come through before they end the production. <laughs> yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> but it's it, mad, isn't it? It's all these it's mental. It is a weird. The market is bizarre at the moment, but it's a fantastic car. I I think that I, I was was quite looking forward to having that car, but definitely my my version of that one car has changed a lot since having a kid and and just mm-hmm. and and just getting older. Like yeah. I think I use cars in a different way. I'm not in that extreme GT4 RS flat yeah. out everywhere wanting the most raw thing i get to drive stuff i get to drive on track occasionally yeah actually the difference between a gt3 and a gts on track you're still going to have a lot of fun in both of them like even if i was in a normal carrera i'm still going to have a lot of fun it's not you're not winning any races mm. or anything um and then so then things like actually being a bit more comfortable a bit quieter like i say maybe like a base carrera probably would maybe be better on the, the smallest wheels I could find. I can't the, wait to try the Carrera T. Yeah. You know, the new one. Because um, I think that could be a fantastic car for all the reasons that you explain. You know, I, I don't want to be beaten up by my car no. when I'm just driving to get to somewhere. Yeah. You know, I'm just not interested in that. So, yeah, I do, GTS I'd love, but yeah, the Carrera is thinking on my gts to remove the gts suspension like the 10 mil do you drop. think it's a bit a bit stiff right, no it's fine it's fine mm. like not not as in on the car i've got at the moment but in the spec car okay yeah. basically spec it like a nice s rather than a gts yeah and, and then just have all the same i looked at I, I know i think i can convert my order into a t if i want maybe oh, okay um as a sort of thought experience, but then I would still want, I would have the back seats in it a hundred percent. Cause like, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to use them. And then I would have the thicker windows, the uh, like double glazing <laughs> type stuff. I so you don't the, want the five kilogram weight saving? No, no. I want the small, like I want the small wheels, the smallest yeah. wheels you can get. Yeah. And then I'll probably rear wheel steering and, Annoyingly, I have the play of I really want adaptive cruise control. Mm. That's quite important to me at the moment because I spend a lot of time on motorways and it's like actually quite useful. It's quite handy, yeah. But you can only have that with PDK and I would quite like a manual with it. Because your car, you've got a previous gen 
Do you, do you have adaptive cruise? Yeah. And is yours a manual? Yeah. See, why can you not get that on a Porsche? Because that's Porsche being difficult, isn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> just... It's... I don't, yeah, I can't explain that. That is annoying, though. There's no reason it can't happen. No, I understand why you might not want it to do it, because it's not as neat, but, like... So what? How many... Is it a seven-speed box still, the PDK? Or is it an yeah, eight now? I think it's seven. Mm. Oh, yeah, I don't know. It might be that the top ratio is too long. And so if it just if yeah. you leave it in that top ratio... Maybe in the manual, because you've got that seven know. that's just like, does yeah. nothing, then... That might be why. And it's just not going to pull that gear when it has and, to try and accelerate and no again. it's going to order it. That's could well. be it. Could be it. But, uh, yeah... Well, I'll have I'll have a I'll have a modern 911 someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you looking up? Googling? <sighs> um, I've well, I've stopped because I bought my Golf GTI a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, but the where my mind is at at the moment is where are the affordable fun cars? So mm. things like Toyota GR86 that's very much on my mind because it's really good fun. Um, things like fun little hot hatches they're very much on my mind. Stuff mm-hmm. that is really genuinely entertaining to drive, but not super expensive to buy because yeah. they're becoming thin on the ground. Yeah. That's on my mind a lot. Yeah. And it's, it's a tricky space, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it really is. It's almost impossible for these car manufacturers to make a case for that kind of car at the moment. And I understand the reasons why, but it's such a shame. It sounds like Euro 7 which was going to be the end of a lot of these cars, is getting scrapped. Yeah, so I was hearing about this earlier. So that, that might well change a few things. It could. Yeah, it might do. I think for the GR86, it's more a safety issue. Okay. It's more about crash legislation than emissions. Mm. But it might well be a stay of execution for some other interesting cars. Um but yeah, that's very much where my head is right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm really into stuff that is actually affordable because it's so easy for us to go on about GT3s and GT4 RSs and McLarens. I can't afford any of them, you know, and I've just spent 22 grand on my car. So not an, a huge amount of money by any means. And so I do try to ground myself in that, in that more real world affordable um, yeah, I try to think more about those cars because it's so easy for someone who does what I do just to float off into the clouds and yeah. explain why Porsches are so wonderful. But I think if you talk... Who do I have on recently? Ollie Marriage was on the podcast yeah. recently. And um, I asked him this question. Or no, it was, it was a slightly different question. But we're basically like, what cars would you have in a sort of hypothetical driver's car situation but not having to be this year? And he basically picked a bunch of stuff that was either, like, old or 300 horsepower and, like, small wheels. Mm. Like, not a lot of grip and about 300 horsepower and not very heavy. And he's like, I can drive that hard. And you're like, yeah, that's it. That's it. Exactly that's, right. That's something about, it's so mental that a car like the Fiesta ST exists, and you can still buy them, you'll still be able to buy all the old ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... And actually that, or a caterham or something, embodies what's fun about cars so well. Like, so well. And then the more money you have and access and car stuff, you start driving all this stuff that's, like, nicer and more powerful and better and whatever. 
And then you come back, you, you get to drive all this stuff, and then you come back full circle and go, yeah, but the thing that makes driving on a road really fun is embodied by these small, <laughs> cheap cars. <laughs> it's so funny. You're, you're absolutely right. And you, you look at these, and these incredible collections of expensive hypercars and supercars, and you just think, okay, great. But you're missing out on so many brilliant driving experiences by not having a little hot hatch in that collection, not having a Caterham in that collection, not having a little light sports car in that collection, because that's where the fun is. Realistically, on the road, that's where the fun is. Yeah. And I think a lot (laughs) lot of people do. But I think it is so easy to get lost. Yeah. Like, as you start getting into that space and being able to afford these cars, you sort of, I think, you see it. You see it in people and they're buying sort of progression. And I I worry that some people never get to the end and the loop back because for whatever reason, and they, they do this sort of up the chain, more expensive, faster, more mm. bling, whatever. But then never get, whether it's enough time, I think people don't have time to drive these things, they don't have the experience to drive them on track or whatever and like i really like now had some mental cars and i'd really do look at like the gts at the moment and go yeah but would a carrera be better like do you maybe like uh, will i buy a carrera yeah, for, i don't know for how you actually use it for yeah how well it actually may well be. use it yeah rather than this fantasy that you might have of how you would use it but also yeah. you know older cars old tie cars. into this older the smaller cars lighter less grip more interactive to drive yeah and yeah i see so many collections of incredible modern hypercars that all do the same thing and what is it that these people are chasing do they just want to be on the list the privileged list do they want just more power because that's how they get their kicks just from squirting for a few seconds in a straight line i i don't know i think each person when you look at all of these situations they're all different yeah so like they you can't go a blanket rule about any hypercar collection or whatever i think a lot the the ones that may be more visible on social media sometimes is someone has sold a business and made an insane amount of money and they go i love cars and then they start the process of ordering some hypercars and they love the process of ordering them and they get into the details and i think the experience of ordering something like that to that level of bespoke is amazing and a lot of people made to feel special made to feel special and then you see a lot of these cars get sold after like a couple hundred miles because actually for some people it it's the process it's actually Mm. the end product they're like yeah whatever but i want to do the process again Mm. or you know it's i can have all the things i've ever wanted so they get all the things they've ever wanted and then maybe in five years ten years time they're back down they're in exploring different avenues and different Mm. stuff i so I have an SC, yeah, 911, and I I don't drive it that much at the moment, and I don't really know when I'm going to be able to drive it at the moment with having a kid and stuff. Eventually that will change. But I'm pondering, okay, what would I like to use that for? And it's got to be fun drives, and it is fun to drive. Or maybe something like an, as an old Alpha or something. Oh, I'm into those, yeah. Would be a bit more loose, yeah, a bit more fun, a bit more like on the edge, something yeah. like, like a Caterham, but in a sort of vintage mm. vibe mm. Um, oh, and like I'm a totally cool aesthetic. Those. Like I think that would probably be more fun for those one hour I get every now and then than mm. a nine eleven actually because it's it's quite grippy. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, that's exactly it. And what I, I love it when you see a collection that has that variety. You know, it might have a few hypercars mm. in it, but when you've got old Alphas and old 911s and classics and, you know, different shaped cars, there might even be a hot hatch in there. That is when yeah. you know that you've stumbled upon... And I, I don't want to be snobbish about this, but you, you can just get a sense that that person really understands and really enjoys cars in the way that we do. And you can tell within two minutes of talking to someone, mm. and like whatever, whatever the, the, the bank balance is, yeah. whatever they're driving, you yeah, talk yeah, to yeah. them. And I've, I've met people that have absolutely insane collections who will get just as excited about whatever, talking about mm. a Fiesta ST as mm. like there's some uh, McLaren F1 or something. Like, that's the kind of people I can relate to and like and then there's everyone else or different you know everyone has their own jam mm. and that's cool that's fine yeah it is cool yeah yeah and I, I don't know I do look at these collections of brand new hypercars and supercars and just think I'd, I would never do that even if I had even if I won what is the US lottery at the moment it's up to 1.9 billion dollars isn't yes. it you don't get all of that I know but even if I won that... You get a lot. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot. I wouldn't build one of those collections. I might have one of those cars because it's an experience, but I would have a variety of stuff. There's, I might even have just a small collection of cars that I really cared about. I, having now been through a stage where at one point I owned like six cars mm. and I hate having... I hate having more than one car. Like I, I, it's a pain in the ass. The heart um, bleeds. So, no, 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 no. But like, I've, 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 exp- I've experienced a little bit because you, you could own five cars that cost 500 quid. Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's not a price thing. Yeah, people do. The logistics of managing oh. and running and having cars, like, do you have enough parking? Are they parked yeah. outside? Are they in the garage? Are they down the road? Like, yeah. when you get 50 cars, you have to employ someone to yeah. look after your cars and they are every day doing a freaking MOT. Like, mm. literally pretty much. Every, well, <laughs> you know, sorry, every once week. Once a week doing yeah. an MOT. Yeah, like, I, I can't be bothered with that stuff. I really, really can't, you know? And also, you, you need somewhere just to put them. So that's yeah. a lock-up somewhere, isn't it, realistically? Unless you happen to have loads of garaging at home. I, I think the experience of, let's say you've got some track cars. Like I've got a race car, but it lives with a race team. So I yeah. and that actually, apart from the financial side of it, is zero effort to, mm. to look after. So if you've got that sort of situation where you're going to go somewhere, your car's prepped and ready to go, or it's in a storage place that handles everything, then, then fine. But it is a bit of a headache having multiple cars. And, yeah. and if you've got a billion dollars, like, you're not buying cars for value, really. You might... If, if you've mm. built a company and sold it for a billion dollars, then you probably do have some appreciation. You do, you will want to sort of buy things that are worth value. But at the end of the day, if your car goes up 50 quid or down 50 quid, it's not going to kill you, is it? No. So just having assets in cars mm. is a bit of a headache. I don't know. It's a... I just, a, I, I just a, don't think I'd ever. Dilemma. I don't think I'd ever build a massive collection because I'd only want a few cars that I really, really loved. That would be the important thing for me. I almost, I think, if you gave me a billion dollars, <laughs> well, I can't. I was like, but... <laughs> but yeah, but like in a hypothetical world of whatever, I think I would have, I would have like three cars. Yeah, I would have like the thing I drove around town, mm. the fun sports car, and the family car. Yeah, and and they change. Gradually. And they would change 
whenever I felt like it. Because yeah. I've got a billion dollars, it's not yeah. a case of like, oh, I've lost 50 grand on that car, whatever. I go, you know what? This mm. week, this month, this six months, I want to have a speciali. I'm going to buy yeah. a speciali. Next month, ah, I'm going to see if I can day drive an F1 GTR. I'm going to buy an <laughs> F1 GTR. Whatever. Like, and just literally just use it. Yeah. Use the damn thing. Yeah. Use the damn thing. I'd, be, I'd feel guilty if I had cars that just sat around. Yeah. Yeah, that's anyway. where my head's at. Five car garage. Final question. Oh god, well we've just said threes right, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, but five gives you more scope. <laughs> five car garage. Bloody hell. It, <laughs> it's an impossible question. Um, okay, what what bases do we need to cover off? Um, I think probably I do want some kind of little electric car. Yep. In if I had five, I think I would want a little electric car because I find them useful for nipping around. Um, so what is that? It's I don't know at the moment. I think an i3s would be fantastic, but it's old tech, so it's it difficult is. to charge and doesn't have great range and so on. Um, so something. I don't know. Something I don't know what like it is. That. There's I'm not call a lot of options. I'm going to call it an i3s for now. Yeah. Um, so that's my little city car. I want a comfortable car, a family car. Mm. It's possibly a Range Rover, um, but it might also be. Do I want a Range Rover? They're so comfy. I think I do. I think I do want a Range Rover. Um, I want a Resto mod. Mm. Um, and that's going to be today. It's a singer, but the classic turbo study. So the, the latest one that they've released. Turbocharged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I want my, do I want a supercar in there? Maybe an older one. I think I want a GT3 touring, but the previous one. Okay. So that gives me my modern fast car kicks. Yeah. Um, and I need one more, don't I? Something uh, mental? Something you could drive on track? Oh, no, you can drive a GT3 on track. GT3. Oh, well, I'd probably have a race car. And it might even be a historic race car. It might be something I could race at Goodwood. Um, something that's not going to frighten me, so maybe a little alpha. Yeah. Um, and that would do me. Sorted. Yeah, so what did I say? little electric car, which is going to be an i3 for now. Range Rover, uh, GT3 Touring. I said a Singer Turbo Study. And let's call it a little alpha historic race car. Next time you ask me, that'll be different. Yeah, but I think (laughs) think that'd be pretty good. I think that's that's pretty much it. This is why I have to keep uh, my... I I hate the fact that it's fun, but asking people this question all the time, you think about it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, okay, but I own five cars. Yeah, but some people (laughs) probably go for a load of cars that overlap, don't they? Oh, yeah, most people... I would say most people... If I ask just general, like mm. everyone, they're going to go, right, okay, I'll have a 250 GTO, I'll have an F1 GTR, <laughs> I'll have like basically the five most expensive cars I can think of that are exotic, yeah, yeah. which I totally get. I've come like full circle on it and go, okay, but like not the on paper, what's the most ridiculous garage can I assemble? It's like, what would I actually want to live with? <laughs> I don't like having shoes that overlap. If I've got two <laughs> pairs of trainers, I'm annoyed because I don't know which ones to wear. So I want a pair of trainers. I want some good boots, 
that still look a bit smart, like some yeah. nice Timberlands. I want walking boots. I want a scruffy outdoor trainer for gardening and maybe some smart shoes for a wedding. So I know exactly what each one is for yeah. and there's no overlap. That's, there is That's there's what I so want much cars. in having no overlap. Like, <laughs> I'd love to have no overlap with stuff because then yeah. it's, the decision is easy. Yeah. It's like, what car am I going to drive? Long journey, Range Rover. Like, it does, you don't go long journey, classic alpha. Unless yeah. it's like I'm driving to the Alps to do yeah, for something fun, fun or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Maybe clearly that's just... Oh, God. Just hit a okay. by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> clearly that's just how my brain works. Maybe I'm yeah. just a logical person. I don't know. But yeah, I like that sort of delineation. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly getting there. I'm slowly, yeah. slowly diverging. You'll join me. You'll but I would equally me. have the... The five-car garage that is, like, every iteration of GT3 and GT3 RS from, like, <laughs> 2.7, mm, yeah. 964 RSR, 9972 yeah, RS, yeah. 992 RS. I would go... <laughs> That'd be the, fun. That'd be fun. But no, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that. But I can see why people, like... I can see why people how people get there to yeah. some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Right. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It always is fun. So thanks for having me back. Longer than I thought it was going to be. Well, it's once you get going, it's easy to chat rubbish, isn't it? Two and a half hours. I made a solid list of things to talk about, and actually, um, there's a bunch of things we've not talked about. So that's uh, well, well well again. I only had about ten on there. Um, (laughs) Good. Well, thanks very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.